have time for a cold open. No, we don't. Today. We need to get into it because it's the season finale. And these are two huge, huge bangers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this is Herstory. On the Rock. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> and we are not historians. No, not one bit. <laughs> but we do know how to Google, mm-hmm. and we've been doing this for three years, and this is our 150th episode. What? Isn't that crazy? That means we've That's... done 300 women. Wow. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I can't believe these two, it took this long to get to them. I know. Really two <laughs> huge people that I'm really excited to get to. <laughs> um, but you're busy. Um, you are draining your radiators, you know, whatever that is, you know, yeah, because there is an air bubble, you have to bleed them out. So you're busy, your hands are wet. I don't know if your hands get wet during that. Sounds like, I feel like they could. They yeah, could. they could. So you can't look on your phone to see what these women look like. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? Well, everybody knows what my person looks like. I'm doing Elizabeth (laughs) Taylor and I love her. I think she is insane in like Mm -hmm. good and bad ways. Mm -hmm. She's great. Um, She's been described as one of the most beautiful women, not only of Hollywood, but to have ever lived. Mm -hmm. Her hyper femininity in her looks is built from her eyes that are described as so blue they're violet. Her ivory, velvety skin, her raven hair, and her bold red lip. Literal scientists of beauty have done research on why people find Elizabeth so (laughs) damn attractive. And it comes down to just the size and shape of her face and body. Like, apparently, when um, people go through puberty, like, their jaw... For men, their jaw drops and their brow raises. And for women, that happens, but to a lesser extent. And hers, like, didn't happen very much. So she appears very, very feminine. And then, of course, her figure is also... She was blessed in that area of puberty. (laughs) (laughs) Because she has, like, a hugely hourglass shape that she often cinched at the waist Mm -hmm. to accentuate it. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor, everybody. That's what she looks like. What does your person look like? Um, Not going to lie, mine wasn't as cute, uh, but (laughs) she is. (laughs) Um, So, I'm doing Susan B. Anthony, and Susan had a rather square face with a prominent jawline. Uh, She had kind of heavy eyes and a downturned mouth that often appeared to be in a bit of a grimace. (laughs) In her younger years, she had dark hair parted in the middle and pulled back into a bun. In her older years, she had pretty much the same haircut, but it was white. (laughs) Uh, She could typically be seen with um, small round eyeglasses and dark, heavy ruffled modest dresses and that's pretty much what she looked like like everyone knows that she just is like this old lady she looks kind of like she has a resting bitch face for sure and i mean her profile on money doesn't help her no it it doesn't and i mean i do find that she was pretty in her younger years yeah we rarely ever see pictures of her young um, but yeah, like we always only picture her as like really old and, right. uh, Kate McKinnon played her in a hysterical SNL sketch <laughs> and she looked exactly like her. That's so funny. I, um, 
was thinking when we post this episode, it's going to be called Susan and Elizabeth, and people mm-hmm. are going to assume that it's Elizabeth Cady Stan- or Katie Stanton. Oh, yeah. Because, like, yeah. wouldn't oh we gosh. pair that together? They're but it's seeds. not no. secret. So that would be like telling the same story right. twice. Back like, to in back. The same episode. Right. No, no, no. Okay. We would never. <laughs> How could we? <laughs> um, all right. So Tell me what I'm drinking. It? It's so pretty. So the cocktail is called Nothing Less. It is two ounces of gin, an ounce of pink limoncello, a dash of rose liqueur, egg white, simple syrup, lime juice. So you shake all that together and then you top it off with a dusting of ground pistachios and dried rose hips. Oh, (laughs) it looks so pretty. Cheers. Cheers. really good mm. you definitely didn't overdo the rose no i did not <laughs> you have to be really really light with it because it is so fragrant um but i had a feeling that you were going to do violet and i was like i think i'll do like a complimentary rose thing yeah and i also got these gorgeous rose petals from terrain last week right. that are made for cocktails so i wanted to use and them. i feel like suffragists used to wear like a yellow rose right if they were yeah, pro so. women's suffrage i think so yeah that something sounds, like that, that so sounds, here we go right. here we go <laughs> Um, you want to know what I know about Susan B. Anthony? Yes. Uh, I would say she's probably the most famous American, um, suffrage rights activist, Mm -hmm. uh, female suffrage rights activist. Um, I know that she has been in a lot of our other stories. I don't know a lot about her personal life. I know she was arrested for trying to vote Mm -hmm. before, um, women had the right to vote federally mm-hmm. and I know that she was really close with Elizabeth Katie Stanton and there's that really cute picture of them where they're like old ladies mm-hmm. like next to each other I really like that picture um but other than that like if somebody was like sit down and write down everything you know I would just be writing about like the women's right to vote and like I'd be yep. like Seneca Falls this and mm-hmm. Sojourner Truth that like right. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing specifically her life so I'm yep. excited to learn okay great um, so honestly, I got most of this from Wikipedia. There was some shockingly little, like straightforward information about her. That's that shocking. I think wasn't in like a big biography. You know? I can't believe that. That like nobody do- did just like a thirty-minute podcast on her. Anything. Yeah, I mean there are, but they were also just reading the Wikipedia page. Right. You know? So they had the same. So I like kind of stopped listening to those because right. I was like, I don't want it need to say the same things on Wikipedia in the same order. You know what I'm saying? Like totally know what you mean. Like you know how you can just tell when you're like. Yeah, they're like their primary source is the Wikipedia page, which yeah. is also mine. Right, um, <laughs> I can then, tell that. <laughs> and then the Susan B. Anthony House um, also did do like a like a twenty eight minute video about her, mm-hmm. so that had some really good information. Um, oh yeah, and people put I voted stickers on her grave. Yeah, that's something do. I know about her. Yes, they do. Okay, so Susan Anthony was born on February fifteenth, eighteen twenty, to Daniel Anthony and Lucy Reed in Adams, Massachusetts. She was the second oldest of seven children, and she was named for her maternal grandmother, Susanna, and for her father's sister, Susan. So two Susans in the family. (laughs) Now three. (laughs) And if you're wondering where the B came from, uh, apparently it was just really fashionable for young girls to put initials with their names. Apparently it was called the Great Craze for Middle Initials. (laughs) So she chose B. So that's not her middle name initial? No, she doesn't have a middle name. Wow. <laughs> I know. Should we make one up? 
I think so. Beatrice? I would love Beatrice. Okay, Susan Beatrice Anthony. I love it. (laughs) Um, So some people say that, like, oh, she picked B because, like, her namesake aunt, like, married a guy whose name was Brownell, but she never used the name Brownell, and, like, I don't know if that's even true, but, yeah, just the B. Uh, She came from a line of people very dedicated to social reform because, surprise, surprise, they were Quakers. Yay! We talked about the Quakers. (laughs) Uh, Her father was a dedicated abolitionist, a temperance advocate, and a strong believer in women's rights. Wow. Women and men spoke equally in Quaker houses, um, so in Quaker meeting houses, so they just kind of fell naturally into suffrage and women's rights because Mm. when they were making decisions in the church, women and men had equal votes. So for the Quakers, it seemed very weird that, like, Nobody else thought women should be able to vote. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Um, so her brothers, uh, Daniel and Merritt, even moved to support the anti-slavery movement in Kansas. Merritt would go on to fight with John Brown against pro-slavery forces during the bleeding Kansas crisis. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this is, like, deeply embedded in her family life, like social reform, abolition, women's rights which is pretty cool. Um, so, but her family was not without scandal. Susan's father, Daniel, caused quite a stir in the community when he married Lucy because she was not a Quaker. She was Methodist. <gasps> this was very upsetting, but they were like, okay, we'll look past it. We're tolerant. But then the community of Quakers that they were in completely disowned him because he threw a dance for the local kids in the community. <laughs> It's so weird the things that, that these people are I accepting know. of and the things they're not accepting of. I know. It's like, I don't, it's so strange. It's yeah. like slavery, not okay, which like, yeah, I totally agree with them, like, but dancing. dancing. Abs- or, yeah, like, absolutely Of the not. devil. Yeah, of like, the devil that yeah. dancing is. Like, dancing is, I mean, whatever. It's just so funny to me. <laughs> so she comes from a long line of disturbers. <laughs> I also just love that her dad was like, let the kids dance. Oh, my God. Like. They need to have some fun. Exactly. Get (laughs) over it. Uh, So, her family was so anti-slavery that when um, Susan was 16, she began her first petition writing thing. So, she collected petitions against slavery as a part of an organized resistance to a gag rule that prohibited anti-slavery petitions. So they came out with this this law or whatever that you couldn't make any petitions to say that you're against slavery. And she was like, well, I'm going to do it even more. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was petitioning from that early at 16. Um, But eventually they left that community anyways when Daniel got a new job in Battenville, New York, managing a large cotton mill. So even though the family was often scrapped for cash, uh, Susan's parents wanted to make sure that the boys and girls got the best education they could. So Susan was sent to boarding school in Philadelphia when she was 17, which she desperately needed because in the one-room schoolhouse that she had been attending, she was literally denied an education. (laughs) She begged her teacher to give her some practice problems and division. She was like, look, we've been adding and subtracting every day. I've got it down. I just want to try division. I wanted to buy. Please. (laughs) And he said, no, Susan, there is no reason that a woman will ever need to know division. (laughs) I mean, I agree, but (laughs) just kidding, just kidding. 
So she thought that this boarding school would be her answer. She's like, awesome. I'll finally get a decent education. Feel the numbers. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, after only one semester, there was a huge financial crash known as the Panic of 1837, and the family lost nearly everything. The cotton mill went down, and they even had to auction off their belongings just to make ends meet. So as soon as she finished up school, um, she only was at that school for one semester. So I don't know how she ended up finishing her education, if she ever really did. Oh, wow. Um, but immediately, like, her and her sister was like, were like, we got to work. So they got jobs um, teaching, ironically. Can we rename what happened in 2020 to, like, the panic of 2020? Like, 100 years from now, what are we going to call it? Oh, God. I love that there's names for yeah. things that happened in certain years and you don't know until later. I just want to call it like the fuckery. Just, so <laughs> just put it in I all the textbooks. The yeah. fuckery <laughs> textbooks are not, they're useless. I'm yeah. like a waste of money and paper. Anyway, <laughs> so her and her sister are working as teachers, even though they're yes. non-educated. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 18... 18- 45, the family moved to a farm in Rochester, New York, where they actually um, found a really nice community, all of reformed Quakers, who had all had the same kind of feelings about the restrictions that the church has been placing. I mean, they basically could have been called the Dancing Quakers, this group. <laughs> um, and so in 1848, they founded the Congregational Friends, which was basically like a cool Quakers group. And Susan's family home soon became the Sunday afternoon gathering place for, like, groups and just, like, other local activists. And this is where Susan met Frederick Douglass. He would come here all the time to meet with other abolitionists. And they would be lifelong friends. They were extremely close. So that's why at the beginning when I was describing her and I said she's the most famous American suffrage fighter, I was like, well, (laughs) I don't know that that's necessarily true. I feel like Frederick Douglass might be the most famous American. (laughs) So most famous female American suffrage fighter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were always together. Yeah, they were really close. Um, And it's because of this kind of community that her family fell into in Rochester is really cool. Um, so she is like teaching at this other place. Um, but her family was up in Rochester doing all this work. Um, they would also attend events at the first United Methodist church of Rochester, which was the location of the Rochester women's rights convention of 1848. Uh, again, Susan was an, like teaching at a boarding school out of town during this time. Um, she was actually the head mistress of the female department. Okay, McGonagall. I know. <laughs> Shush. Kanahoari Academy. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, no. um, but so she's off being a headmistress, like a lunatic. Um, <laughs> did she even finish high school? I don't know. <laughs> but here she is. Here she is. Um, but her parents and sister actually attended the... Uh, Rochester Women's Rights Convention, Convention, and they signed the Declaration of Sentiments, which had been first presented at Seneca Falls two weeks before. Wow. So that's also something I didn't know. I always put her at Seneca Falls, mm. but she wasn't there. I think She's I read that in young. one of our books, yeah. right? Because Elizabeth Katie Stanton was there. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But one of the book authors we did, mm-hmm. I think we, I learned that, I feel like. Yeah, and I was really surprised. But yeah, because she's like a young, like 20-something at this point. Okay. Like, she wasn't as into it. Um, so her family goes to this event, though. They sign the Declaration of Sentiments. They're so into it. And Susan said that her father could not shut up about it. Mm-hmm. 
he kept writing to her about the convention and the declaration and just everything that was going on. And he's like, I'm so excited about it. But it's funny, Susan wasn't quite ready to be interested yet. She was finally out of the house. She was developing her own personality and style outside of the Quaker church. She started wearing more stylish dresses. And she stopped using the word the. (laughs) Which was pretty big. Whoa, she uses the? Yeah. Or like you. Because I think it was like, oh, like, do thee have a pencil? Oh, like T-H-E-E-V? Yeah, T-H-E-E. And then she's like, no, I'm sorry, do you have a pencil? Does, doth thee have doth a pencil? Have a pencil. <laughs> like, this is not the 1800s. No, it is the 1800s. My bad. Yeah, but she, like, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty crazy. Like, that's crazy, like, yeah. to change your speech patterns. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think she was just kind of, like, experimenting and, like, I don't know. Ready to um but take out on her own. <laughs> I'm gonna take V out of it. Thanks. Exactly. Um, so while her parents were really um keen on getting women the right to vote, Susan was like, actually, I don't don't quite care about that yet. She was like, What I'm upset about is that men who are doing the same work as me are getting paid a lot more. Ooh. She once said, I wasn't ready to vote. I didn't want to vote, but I did want equal pay for equal work. So she also at this time got more involved in the temperance movement because um, I think she thought like these are things that are affecting people right now, mm. like men's drinking and like us not getting paid for equal work. That's affecting us right now. She's like voting is in the long game, mm-hmm. you know, so like I'm not worried about that at the moment, like right. whatever. Short like, game, long game. Exactly. She's going to try and play the short game, which we need people who do both. Yeah. Um, so she starts getting involved really heavily in the temperance movement. Um, But she ended up feeling kind of powerless, you know, in this area of New York. You know, she's trying to get involved um, and she's trying to stand up for herself and demand equal pay at her job. Um, But they just weren't listening to her. So she quits her job in protest and moves back to Rochester so she could start working to form her political voice. She's like, okay, I want to do this now. I want to be an activist. So she starts wearing bloomer dresses, which her dresses were like where the skirt stopped at the knee, exposing the woman's pantaloons underneath. Ooh. <laughs> um, it was actually much more comfortable for women and easier to move around in. But eventually she gave up the bloomer dress because her opponents could not stop talking about what she was wearing. And it became the focus of like debates and speeches and like things written about her. And she's like, I'm sick of this. Like. Doesn't that Fine, sound familiar? I'll just wear the long dress. <laughs> okay, add another foot back to my fabric. Yeah. Um, and, like, she was speaking quite a lot. Um, in her early days, her main focus was, as I said before, temperance. Um, but she was making a lot of speeches at temperance meetings around New York. And then in 1851, Susan met someone who would change her life forever, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, they met and they found that they worked really well together because they had complementary skills and likes. Susan excelled at organizing and public speaking, while Elizabeth had an aptitude for intellectual matters and writing. Like someone once said that, like, you know, like they're like Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the philosopher behind the suffrage movement, the women's movement, and Susan Anthony was like out there on the front lines, like just getting it done. Mm. Like it was really cool. Um, and there was also the matter of their, like, complementary lifestyles. Elizabeth had seven children, but Susan was single. So Susan would come over to, help, to the house and care for Elizabeth's children so she could 
go off into a separate room where it was quiet and she could write, which I didn't know that Susan B. Anthony did that. And when she was finished writing, you know, Susan was like, okay, here are your children back. And she would go out and spread the words and the ideas that Elizabeth had written down because she could travel freely. And she was acting kind of like as a makeshift babysitter for yeah. a bit to like let Elizabeth get some work done. Yeah, which is something very cool that like, I just love that they're like, okay, I know exactly what you need. They're like, I, you need someone to take care of these seven children. You need you. time. You need time. So I think that's the one thing that people don't like, I know they under, like, we know this about moms, but like, they need time for whatever it is, but they and need you don't, time. you don't always like associate it with people like in the 1800s because you're like, okay, well, they weren't probably working outside the house. So then they're home, but it's like, also they didn't have microwaves and mm-hmm. like dishwashers. So the house was a much harder place to work in. So if you wanted to make big, bold strokes, like Elizabeth Cady Stan was, then you really needed somebody to take some of that load especially if you have seven children yeah you needed a focus right and i just i don't know i just think that was so cool that they did that for each other so um they became extremely close and apparently whenever the stanton family moved they made sure to reserve reserve a room for susan she always had a room in any house that elizabeth katie stan lived in um and elizabeth's husband seemed to be super supportive of this he once said Susan stirred the puddings, and Elizabeth stirred up Susan, and then Susan stirred up the world. Mm. Which I love that quote. That's really <laughs> cute. That's really, really cute. It's adorable. Because um, I think it's great, because, yeah, like, Susan, Susan stirred the puddings. Yeah, like, she was making food for Elizabeth's kids. Yeah. You know? I just, I don't know. I think it's great. So, and they need to rally each other up. Yes, he's like, he's like they, they were each other's sounding board. They really were. Um, so by 1854, the two women had, quote, perfected a collaboration that made the New York State movement the most sophisticated in the country. Um, that's according to Anna D. Gordon, a professor of women's history. I just love that. I think it really sums it up. Now, does she have a middle name? <laughs> or is it just D? <laughs> just the D. <laughs> just the D, thanks. So in 1852, Susan is elected as a delegate to the State Temperance Convention. Um, But while she was at this event, you know, wherever it was, this convention, the chairman stopped her when she tried to speak, saying that women delegates were, delegates, (laughs) delegates, were there to only listen and learn. And so Susan said, fuck that. Absolutely not. And she immediately walked out and announced that they were going to have a meeting of their own then, the women. Mm. And they created a committee to organize a women's state convention. This convention consisted of 500 women. They met in Rochester in April and they created the Women's State Temperance Society with Elizabeth Cady Stanton as president and Susan B. Anthony as the state agent. I also read at some point that Susan B. Anthony always wanted Elizabeth Katie Stanton to be like above her in like rank and order. Like she was interesting. Yeah. And I think it's because like, she's like, no, like she really has the ideas here. And I once, I, I read that at some point that like, she's, I was like, no, like she should be first. She should be the one less. Like she's president. She's on I'm top. Vice president. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
Around this time, the first National Women's Right Convention was held in Syracuse, New York, and Susan served as one of the convention's secretaries. According to Ida Husted Harper, Anthony's author, she was like the authorized biographer. Um, she said, Miss Anthony came away from the Syracuse convention thoroughly convinced that the right which women most needed above every other, the one indeed which would secure to her all others, was the right of suffrage, the right to vote. Mm. Um, so this took a while for her to get to this point. It really did. And it's, it's hard because I feel like I'm kind of bouncing around because it's literally her whole life is just like, and then she went here and then she went there and then she was taking up this cause and that cause. Mm. But so she goes to the um, Syracuse convention and this was the first national women's rights convention. And she really gets like the fire for suffrage suffrage. She's like, okay, now I understand why people want this so bad, but she wasn't ready to fully dedicate herself to it yet, which okay. I found very interesting. So she knows about it. She's fired up about it. But she's like, I, I have other things to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> so in 1853, she attended the World's Temperance Convention in New York City. Um, but again, she left distressed because they ended up spending the majority of the convention discussing whether women should be allowed to speak or not. And she was so frustrated. She's like, I want to fight for temperance, but I'm not even allowed to talk at any of these goddamn meetings. So how can you even do your job? How, that's yeah. like the whole thing. She's like, Elizabeth Cady Sand and I are right. Cause she was also a firm temperance movement person, you know, and she was like, that was like their thing in the beginning. And right. they're like, we're writing all of these great speeches and these ideas and no one will let us talk. Like mm. it was so frustrating. So after this, she was like, you know what? I think I need to take a break from temperance <laughs> because obviously they're not ready for me to speak yet. Right. Um, so she, Which also I appreciate. Take yeah. a break from temperance. I'm very exactly. pro anti-temperance. Yeah. And then she decided that she was like, you know, I'm going to focus then on something that, you know, maybe I will have a voice in. And that was abolition. In 1856, she agreed to become the New York State agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society, with the understanding that she would also continue her advocacy of women's rights. So she's like, yes, I'm going to come do this anti like this abolition work, but I'm going to put a feminist spin on it. Like, mm. you know, she kind of walked in with the idea that she was going to bundle the two. She organized anti-slavery meetings throughout the state under banners that read, no compromise with slaveholders, immediate and unconditional emancipation. She also organized a service of mourning for John Brown, who her brother fought with, um, because at this time he was being executed for leading the raid at, you know, at Harbor's Ferry. Right. And she just felt like this was so unjust. So she organized this service of mourning for everyone like on the day of his execution and she also organized a fundraiser for his family. Mm. And it was just incredible. Um, she was also, at this time, starting up conversations that people weren't quite ready to have yet. She saw past abolition and she was like, okay, so when, not if, these people are freed, what are we going to do? How are we going to integrate them into society? Right. So she's talking reconstruction. Yes. Right. She was like, we need to have a plan in place for when all of these people need 
places to work, places to live. What kind of society are we going to be once this happens? Yeah, maybe not the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, exactly. Um, She once said in a speech, let us open to the colored man all our schools. Let us admit him into all our mechanic shops, stores, offices, and lucrative business advocations. Let him rent such a pew in the church and occupy such seat in the theater. Extend to him all the rights of citizenship. Which I think is a really bold conversation to be having at the time. Because slavery is not even done yet. No, it's not done yet. Yeah, you're like, you're talking like, Something that didn't happen until almost a hundred years later. Like she's step two. Like right. she is <laughs> like, I don't know. I just think that that's really cool. Um, but like all movements, um, there were some splinters that were becoming clear to Susan. I think she's getting really sick of these. <laughs> so the men who were heavily involved in abolition work, who were really good at it, sometimes didn't want to help the women in their suffrage or temperance work, you know? Yeah. And they kept telling her, they're like, well, any kind of vigorous campaigning for women's rights would interfere with the abolition campaign. It was the classic, yes, you, eventually. But right now, then. But not right now. But not right now. In one instance, Susan was helping a woman who was escaping an abusive husband and seeking help for herself and her child. So she's helping this woman and she's talking to this you know, fellow abolitionist, William Lord Garrison. Um, and he basically tells her, he goes, well, you can help the woman. You can help the woman, but that child needs to be taken back to the father. Since according to the law, he has full custody. Susan looked at him in the eye and she said, well, uh, you, you helped slaves escape to Canada in violation of the law. So she said, the law which gives the father ownership of the children is just as wicked as slavery, and I'll break it just as quickly. Damn! Fight! 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 Because he's telling her, he goes, you have to be obeying the law. And she's like, we're not obeying the law, helping these slaves in the Underground Railroad. You don't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. Especially, you're going to send a child back to an abusive father? The hell is wrong with you? Yeah, it's like, well, because the kids are property. The white kids are property. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, so another advocate, abolitionist, Wendell Phillips, uh, tried to have something Elizabeth Cady Stanton said at a meeting stricken from the record because they're at a meeting, they're talking about abolition, women's rights, da, 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 And she goes, we need to take a stance on divorce because she said women should have more rights in divorce cases and we should be able to divorce our husbands. And he goes, uh, 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 nope. You know what? I'm not going to entertain this. We're Strike not going to have this in the meeting. And he literally tried to have it stricken from the record. <laughs> Take it off the minutes, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So, in a letter to Lucy Stone, Susan wrote, The men, even the best of them, seem to think the woman's right question should be waived for the present. So let us do our own work and in our own way. So let's talk about that work. Let's talk about Susan's involvement in the women's rights and suffrage movement. So in 1860, Susan and Elizabeth successfully campaigned for the Married Women's Property Act, which finally gave women legal control over their wages and it gave them the, like, they could own their own property. Like, this is a huge, like, win that happened because of the two of them which i didn't really know about and it's ma- i mean it's massive it's huge and 
it even still, you know, in the 1860s still came with stipulations, mm-hmm. you know, like is it what is it like 1970 women could apply for their own credit cards right, or something yeah. but it's like okay you can own a house yeah no credit and like i also think like probably like one of those things like okay i guess if your husband dies uh-huh. then you can like take over the deed but yeah <laughs> it was also interesting because susan was an interesting person to have in this route because she was a single woman mm. so she was like, I felt if there was like a term for it, but she was a person who could sign documents because there was no one over her in her life. Right. She was so, her own family. Yeah. It was a specific right that actually Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not have. Elizabeth Cady Stanton couldn't sign things for herself. Right. But Susan could. And think about how many women we've done who either their father or their husband had died and all their money goes to their son or their brother yeah. or like this totally skips over them right as yeah. if they weren't even there and like yeah. i mean people very very famous people yeah yeah it's so true like egyptian pharaoh women yeah. <laughs> like insane <laughs> people who like the money just skipped directly over them yeah it's crazy no, yeah so, um, then in 1863, they started the Women's Loyal National League, which was the first national women's political organization in the United States. Hmm. And they ended up putting on the largest petition drive in the nation's history up to that time. The League collected nearly 400,000 signatures to abolish slavery. So... That is approximately one out of every 24 adults in the northern states. Wow. That is a huge organization effort at the time of, like, no telephones. So no massive. cars. No like, good roads. No quills. <laughs> like, how did people travel? Parchment rolls. We did not have ballpoint pens. No, we did not. <laughs> and, um, and Susan was, like, the chief organizer of this effort, which in also involved recruiting and coordinating, but she organized 2,000 petition collectors for this. And like historians credit this particular petition with significantly assisting the passage of the 13th Amendment, with, which ended slavery. Like this was a huge deal. And another writer said something interesting where they said, well, like, well, petitions, which we know she did back when she was 16, were some that was some of the only political power women had at the time. They couldn't vote. So like, okay, if I can't vote, then I am going to and I can't give a piece speeches. of paper. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to put it in writing how many people fucking agree with me. So in 1866, the country was starting to heal after the end of the Civil War. So Susan and Elizabeth decided it was time to start organizing again. But this time they're like, okay, like the slaves are freed. That is like going good. And that's the 13th Amendment, that was right? the 13th Amendment, yeah. So we got to get all the way up to what, like oh. 19 or whatever? Yeah. Yes. Long it's way a to go. Long ways away. <laughs> so they're like, okay, great. Like for them, I think she was literally like, okay, great. That is done on my list. I can now focus on suffrage and women's rights because like, you know, it's not a perfect situation right now. But she was like, that's a part of the Constitution. That's good to go. Right. Like, let's focus on women's rights. I don't think I put her as much in the abolition movement in my headspace as I, I should. I never did. I didn't know that she was such a huge part of mm. it. 
especially because of things that she does later. Like it was, yeah. and it's uh, interesting because we know Sojourner Truth like met with Abe Lincoln, like, yeah. and that they were at the same conventions. Like we right. should in our heads make that room, but it's just I not know. there. Yeah, it's too much. It's, yeah. So, um, so they decided it was time to start organizing again on women's rights. So they formed the American Equal Rights Association, which focused on suffrage but also fought for the voting rights of all citizens. So they were for, like, they're like, we want everyone. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be put in the Constitution. Like, they were fighting for an amendment that said that no one can be denied the right to vote by, like, race or gender. Mm. So the leadership of this new organization included such prominent activists as Lucretia Mott, Lucy mm. Stone, mm. and Frederick Douglass. This organization was met with a lot of pushback, (laughs) especially from prominent abolitionists who kept saying the same things that they were saying before the 13th Amendment. They go, stop talking about women's rights. We're focusing on the rights of black people right now. So let's get black men the right to vote first and then women. And Susan and Elizabeth kept saying, like, why can't we do both at the same time? Wrap it up. Wrap it up in a bow present it together and put it on the last page real small at the bottom exactly and i just i feel like this starts like a really uncomfortable time period for susan and elizabeth um because there was just like a lot of nastiness going on there was an anti-female suffrage committee to oppose their efforts to get women the vote and all this And during this battle, they ended up aligning themselves with a politician who was like, yeah, I'm really into getting women the right to vote. But he also, like, didn't think that Black people were people, like, humans. (laughs) Like, he was, like, kind of, like, super Super racist. racist. Yeah. So it's, like, people who were comfortable with one or the other or neither, but very rarely they were comfortable with both. Yeah. And so they were like, okay, well, like, the people in this, like the people in the abolition movement, aren't helping us anymore. So, like this guy can like pay to keep our organization open. Okay. So, like they're kind of like they're kind of making a deal with the devil right now. They're like, we don't like that he's racist, but I we also need money. Mm. <laughs> like it's not coming from any of these other groups. So things are getting kind of difficult with this demand from the Republican Party who like they hadn't switched yet so the Republican Party was the anti-slavery party at the time and they kept telling them like it's not time for you yet it's not time and uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not want to wait for this so they ended up splitting from other suffragettes such as Lucy Stone and they ended up forming two different groups because Lucy Stone was like, you know what? I'm going to take the Republican Party side and say, okay, yes, them first and then us. I'm going to play the long game, which we know Susan doesn't like. Nope, doesn't <laughs> like the long game. Isn't there an organization called Now? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Is it like Now? That's what it's called, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... The groups split, and they would eventually take on the very confusing names of the National Women's Suffrage Association, run by Susan, and the American Women Suffrage Association, run by Lucy. <laughs> so the NWSA is the one that's run by Susan. So that's, mm-hmm. keep in mind in your head. NWSA. NWSA. 
She's the assistant to the regional manager. (laughs) (laughs) So Susan and Elizabeth stuck to their beliefs that both groups should be enfranchised at the same time. But this also meant that when it came time for the 15th Amendment, which gave Black men the right to vote, but not women, they campaigned against it, which is super uncomfortable. Yeah. And not okay. But like, now that I know like the story, like I'm like, I do understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Because I think Susan saw it in the future. She's like, if we don't get it now, it won't come for decades. And she was correct about that. Like it didn't come until the twenties. Right. Because there's only so many, I mean, adding amendments is hard. Yeah. We started with 10 and there's only 27 and we've been around for 250 years. Yeah. So she was thinking, she was like, this is my shot. And if they don't put race and gender, like it's going to take so, it's going to be so much harder for us to get gender put in there. Right. It's going to be a whole other amendment where we can just put it in this one. And so she actively campaigned against it. I think like one of her famous quotes, she's like, I would like give my left hand before I let this pass because she was that like frustrated with it, you know? And I feel like a lot of people take that to mean that, she was like really racist and was like, no, like a black man shouldn't vote before me. But really she was saying like, why can't we all vote at the same time? Right. You know, cause like for her, like it also meant like black women couldn't vote and she didn't want that. She was like, no, everybody should vote. So anyways. I think this is one of those things that like you need the whole story. Oh yeah. You can't just like look at a voting record for like one thing and totally understand it. Yeah. Because I mean, she's absolutely right. Like, yeah, she's right. Like, we should all just like pass the voting one and just say literally everybody. Yeah, yeah. And and she said that by effectively enfranchising all men while excluding all women, the amendment would create an aristocracy of sex by giving constitutional authority to the idea that men were superior to women, and that and that, that was correct. Right. She was like. Because I, it was just white men were superior men. to mm-hmm. everybody. And now she's like, you're putting it in the literal constitution that all men are superior to all women. Right. So this was like, this is a really personal battle. And it's da- that's a dangerous thing to say. Um, so, of course, the 15th Amendment did pass. Um, but there were some other reasons for a lot of separation between the NWSA and the AWSA. <laughs> Um, so the NWSA Susan's group worked mostly at the federal level, Mm. focusing on constitutional amendments to achieve women's suffrage. So again, she's like, I don't want to deal with all this goddamn hogwash. She's like, I want to go straight to the top and just go for the big fish. She goes, I want an amendment to the constitution. But the AWSA worked towards the same goal, but at the state level. Hmm. so they were like no if we just go state by state by state eventually they will all approve the woman's right to vote but it just takes a lot longer because like a lot of the states already did mm-hmm. like allow women to vote or like what was well, wisconsin wisconsin no wyoming wyoming i knew it was a w up. yeah <laughs> um and the nwsa's meeting were open to everyone but the AWSA allowed only delegates from recognized state organizations to vote at its meeting. Hmm. So Susan's group is trying to be a little bit more inclusive, trying to get some more voices. Right. Um, 
And uh, the NWSA initially dealt with several women's issues, including uh, divorce reform, equal pay for women, while the AWSA focused almost exclusively on suffrage. Yeah, so they're not worried about divorce. (laughs) They're just like, let us vote! And finally, the AWSA included both men and women. The NWSA was all female. And it all kind of makes sense when you think about their timelines for things. It's like, again, like, the AWSA is slow and methodical, and the NWSA is going straight for gold the whole time. Rip the bandit off. And I and I think you need both because I I don't know. I think both groups did really important things. I think they also both kind of did fucked up things, but like, you know, it's like they are both doing important but different work. Right. So in 1868, Susan Elizabeth started publishing a weekly newspaper called The Revolution. It focused primarily on women's rights, especially suffrage for women, but it also covered other topics, including uh, politics, the labor movement, um, and finance. Its motto was men, their rights, and nothing more. Women, their rights, and, and nothing, nothing less. less. <laughs> and that's why I named the cocktail this. <laughs> Um, in the late 1860s and 1870s, Susan is traveling a lot. She is going all over the U.S., even to places such as Wyoming and Kansas, spreading the gospel of women's suffrage hmm. at a time where it was like really dangerous, especially for single women to be traveling. They're traveling on horseback. That's like the train. wild it's west. Literally the wild <laughs> west. Like people are holding up trains at gunpoint all the time and like stealing women. <laughs> crazy um over her career she estimated that she traveled um or that she averaged 75 to 100 speeches a year which at the time that's crazy that's like one every three days yeah. that's crazy talk and it didn't matter whether she was speaking to 12 people or a thousand she would talk to anyone who would listen sometimes even in dismal locations she once made a speech on top of a pool table in a bar. So you're saying she's a podcast host? Yes. She'll talk to anybody. <laughs> I'll talk to anyone. For free. Once a week. Listen to me. <laughs> At a bar. That's so funny. Like, and meanwhile, like, Carrie Nation's out chopping up bars. Oh, and she's yeah. just, like, getting on pool tables. Like, let me tell you. Exactly. Fuck billiards. <sighs> I'm about to speak. Oh, and it seemed to pay off. Um, because in 1869, women in Wyoming became the first to vote in the United States. Whoop, it was very whoop, whoop, whoop. exciting. And a woman in Utah followed the next year. So in 1871, Susan and the NWSA were like, okay, yeah, the slow plan is working, but still really fucking slow. So they adopted a new strategy of urging women to attempt to vote. So they're like, okay, go out and vote you'll be turned away and then we can file a lawsuit in a federal court to challenge the laws. Basically, they were trying to force a case to go up to the Supreme Court. They're forcing the hand of the Supreme Court. Exactly. Because then they have to interpret it based on the Constitution. Exactly. Okay. So, on November 1st, 1872. Where's Thurgood Marshall at? Who knows? Is he in there yet? Don't know. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, black people just got the right to vote. Certainly Thurgood Marshall is not. No. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta find out. I gotta find out. 
Um, so on November 1st, 1872, Susan and her sisters marched down to a barbershop in Rochester, New York, and they said, we want to register to vote. They were, of course, denied by the man running the site, but Susan reminded him of the 14th Amendment, which read, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. She goes, I'm a U.S. citizen. So you can't restrict my right, and it is my right to vote. So you made a law. So you they so, couldn't. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. So she's kind of giving him the runaround, mm-hmm. and he is like, I actually think that that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> and he literally like consulted a lawyer, and he goes, actually, they make sense. So he registered them to vote. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> Yeah, Thurgood Marshall was not put on the Supreme Court until 1967. Wow. <laughs> so there's that. About a hundred years later. <laughs> yeah, literally, this was... Uh-huh, that's what I'm saying. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so he registered them, and other women followed using the same reasoning. So four days later on Election Day, around 50 women showed up to the polls with valid voter registration cards. They're like, we were allowed to register so we can fucking vote. And on, uh, so there, most of them were turned away from the voting box. Of course. <laughs> uh, but Susan and 14 other women successfully cast their ballots. And so they vote in the presidential election. And on November 18th, 1872, Susan heard a knock on the door that she had been expecting. For two weeks. It was two weeks after she voted. How do you even sleep? I know. <laughs> And it was the U.S. Marshal. It was the police in her driveway. (laughs) uh, To arrest her for illegally voting. Now, this guy did not seem like he wanted to do this. Uh, was not in his usual form to be arresting 52-year-old women. (laughs) So, apparently he said, Miss Anthony, you are under arrest. And at your convenience... Please go downtown to the courthouse. <laughs> oh, he's not like dragging around cuffs. And she said, Don't do that. If you really think I'm a criminal, you can take me downtown yourself like everyone else. Damn. So he did. Uh, they got on the streetcar because they did not have police squad cars. <laughs> there's no there's no fence in the back of a car. No. So they headed to the police station. And when they got on the trolley and she was asked to provide her fare, she said, well, you can ask this gentleman because I am traveling on the expense of the U.S. government. (laughs) Good for her. So. Yeah, me too. uh, Went there. Um, The other women who had voted were also arrested, uh, but they were released because everyone wanted to see the outcome of Susan's trial. (laughs) So people are releasing the other women. Yeah, because they're like, well, this one's going to really determine, like, like, she's the big fish again. (laughs) Got them. So she she got out on bail, and while awaiting trial, she goes on a speaking tour in support of herself and a woman's right to vote. (laughs) So they kept having to move the trial location because she kept preaching to all the people in the town where the trials were being held, they're like, God damn it, Susan, we can't get valid jurors. jurors. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> her speech was entitled, Is it a crime for a US citizen to vote? <laughs> Good so, question. The trial 
the United States versus Susan B. Anthony began on June 17, 1873, and it was closely followed by the national press. Um, following a rule of common law at the time, which prevented criminal defendants in federal courts from testifying, which seems crazy. I did not know that was a thing. She, criminal defendants couldn't testify? No, she was not allowed to speak until after her verdict was read. That seems illegal. Because you can plead the fifth to not testify. Because right. the fifth is the Fifth Amendment. That's mm -hmm. literally in the original mm -hmm. ten. You would think that the right to speak up for yourself and defend yourself. I think. Apparently not. Wow. Didn't know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, she's completely silent through this. And on the second day of the trial, after both sides had presented their cases, Justice Hunt delivered his lengthy opinion and then in the most controversial aspect of the trial, he directed the jury to deliver a guilty verdict. He told them, this woman is guilty. You need to come back with a guilty plea. The judge told the jury that? Mm -hmm. That's not no! allowed. <laughs> no, it's not. And also, how's it a jury of your peers? Were they all men? Pro yes, I'm so sure they, they were. Like, they Everything's wrong. <laughs> Everything's wrong. So... When the judge asked if she had anything to say, she protested what she called this high-handed outrage upon my <laughs> citizens' rights, saying, you have trampled underfoot every vital principle of our government, my natural rights, my civil rights, my political rights, my judicial rights, are all alike ignored. Apparently, it was a pretty fire speech that went on for a lot longer, uh, and she refused to listen to his constant request for her to stop talking and sit down. She was filibustering the courtroom. Her own court case. <laughs> she was like, you wouldn't let me talk this whole two days? I am going to speak up right now. And he kept telling her to sit down and shut up. <laughs> Susan! Um, and then she said, oh, and as for your fine... I shall never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty. And she didn't. She never paid it. And, yeah, she never paid it. And it's What money does she have? Yeah, exactly. Ye <laughs> of little woman. And it's funny because apparently, like, when Trump was president, he was like, well, I'm pardoning Susan B. Anthony. And the Susan B. Anthony Foundation was like, no, it's better that she totally defied this because you pardoning her gives legitimacy to the whole court case. Like, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want that. her to be part. No, we're all super proud that she got arrested for voting. And like, never paid her fine. Right, I guess. really <laughs> happy about well, That's why we put stickers on her goddamn exactly. grave. <laughs> Get with the program. But of course, Susan was not done with her work. Uh, and a special opportunity arose in 1876 when the U.S. celebrated its 100th birthday as an independent country. The NWSA asked permission to present a Declaration of Rights for Women at the official ceremony in Philadelphia. They said it's only right. This is when the you know Declaration of Rights was first presented. We're celebrating it. Let's do women. And they were refused. Undaunted. What is wrong with this country? Do you ever wonder <laughs> about it? Do you ever wonder? Yes, yes. Do you think about it night and day all the time? I do too. Me. That's why I have to take sleeping pills. Oh my God. Undaunted. That's why I drink myself to death and pass out. By 
five women headed by Anthony walked onto the platform during the ceremony and handed their declaration to the startled official in charge. (laughs) And as they, so they get kicked out and as they leave, they hand out copies of their declaration to the crowd and they see an unoccupied bandstand outside of the hall. Cause this was like inside of the hall. So they go inside the hall, they try and, you know, Kanye West, the stage, Right. They're kicked out. They're going to do and, the side concert. Mm-hmm. The small and, stage. Exactly. And we know this from the Matilda Gage story because she's mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And so she, so they go outside and they're like, okay, fine. Everyone who wants to come hear what we have to say, we'll be at the outdoor pavilion. Mm-hmm. So they go to this unoccupied bandstand. Susan B. Anthony gets on top of it and she reads the declaration to the crowd. And afterwards she invites everyone to an NWSA convention at the nearby Unitarian church where speakers like Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton awaited them. They, so they had this plan from the beginning. Like right. they were already in the place where they're like, everyone's going to follow us here and it's going to be great. And they're going to kick us out. They knew yeah, they were going to get kicked exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, there were a few more projects that she worked on, including the controversial history of women's suffrage, mm. which she wrote with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Matilda Gage, but they pushed Matilda Gage out of it because her views were too radical for them. Right. And she it, was like raised by wolves too yeah, radical. Like, Matilda Gage is incredible. And if you want, you should definitely listen to our episode on her. And then read the book about her. Yes. That we have an author episode. Oh, it's fantastic. And then you can go to the mu- her house. Yes. Her right. House. Isn't that the whole thing? Yeah. Yes. It's, she's amazing. Yes. So, um, yeah, the Matilda Gage Foundation is doing really good work. Um, but anyways, so, uh, so they kick Matilda Gage out of it. It's something that I, makes me really sad. <laughs> um, and then there were things that Elizabeth and Susan didn't, you know, agree on as much, such as the woman's Bible. Elizabeth, hmm. you know, as we talked about in that episode too, really wanted to like rewrite the Bible from the perspective of women. And Matilda and Susan were like, I don't understand this project of yours, but I would love to read that, <laughs> but like, I totally, it's like, it's terrible. It's like rewriting Twilight from Edward's perspective. Like I enjoy reading it, but it's also absurd. Yeah. I should also ask for that for Christmas because I do want to read it. Um, so it is really uncomfortable and stalky and he's a hundred year old oh, man no. and she's like 15, but it's great. So like back in my day. Yeah. <laughs> he's like walking with a cane. We stalked women at the candy shop. Oh. Uh, right before I got in high school, he was like women couldn't go. He was like friends with them. He like knew Susan B. Anthony. Edward Cullen is a contemporary with Susan B. Anthony. He's an abolitionist. (laughs) Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, but not Jasper. He was like he he fought for the South in the Civil War. Why did we just? Why didn't we ask for justification on why that was the case? He did. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, so Twilight Corner's over. It's over. It's done with. We'll get back to it later. <laughs> but one of the great things Susan did in her later years was she invested in the continuation of the movement. She would pick young women and personally mentor them so they could carry the torch and continue the work. She lovingly referred to these girls as her nieces. And two of them, Carrie Chapman Cat and Anna Howard Shaw, served as presidents of the NAWSA after Anthony retired from that position. So the two groups did eventually merge and I think formed the NAWSA. Um, 
Which All is now that. the National Organization, Organization. of Women. Yeah, I believe so. Now. Because yeah. <laughs> they use Susan B. Anthony's face as their, yes. like, showpiece. Thing, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but she was working for quite a long time. She was still traveling all, the, all over the U.S., even touring Yosemite National Park on the back of a mule at the age of 75. For what purpose? For, for fun. For that what for actual fun. purpose? That, for fun. that doesn't sound fun. And of course, she made a few speeches at the Chicago World's Fair. She did not. Yes, she did. did she get a tat from Wagner? I hope. <laughs> um, she did this in a large structure called the Women's Building. This was designed by female architect Sophia Hayden Bennett. Didn't know this. I did not know this either. She made this building as a meeting, an exhibition space for the World's Congress of Representative Women. And it was this hall specifically dedicated to talking about women's rights every day, which I did not know was That's a thing. so cool. I just, I didn't know. It's incredible. Um, but it wasn't all work for Susan. Uh, apparently during the convention, during the World's Fair, she was personally invited to Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. And when the show opened, he rode his horse directly to her and greeted her with a dramatic flair. Susan fucking loved this and <laughs> waved her handkerchief at him while the big audience catching the spirit of the scene wildly applauded. What? My word. I think people forget that she was a celebrity at the time. Yeah. Like, everyone knew Susan B. Anthony's names because she was, like, the face of the women's movement. <laughs> I mean, really, really. I need to go to the Sh- Chicago World Fair I site, by the way. To. Like, what is wrong with me? I would love to. I, I mean, like, they get burned down, but... No, I know, but, like, you can, like, go to where it was. <laughs> just like you can in every freaking state. No, <laughs> we'll know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, like, walk in the shadow of these people. That's so... We... I would love... Love to figure out how many women we did have uh, done were there. We bring it up literally every time. And then every I stopped time. at the Chicago. Well, there exactly. were also two Chicago World Fairs, which makes it a little harder, right? No, no, there there was a St. Louis World Fair right, and the right, Chicago right, right, World right. Fair, but they were both like a year and a half long. Like they're ridiculous. And the St. Louis one, like, is where the arch is. That's and why they like, built okay, the damn arch. Yeah. Like, so we we've it. seen that, been there, done with done that. that. Over it. Um <laughs> sorry, St. Louis. Sorry. For being such assholes. <laughs> Um, I mean, her 80th birthday was celebrated at the White House at the invitation of President William McKinley. <laughs> oh, he dies. Unbelievable. Well, they all die. All the presidents die eventually, but he died via assassination. Yeah. Um, so Susan and Elizabeth's relationship changed a bit over the years as their beliefs changed, like we kind of talked about earlier, um, but they always had a great affection for one another. And when Elizabeth died in 1902... Susan wrote to a friend, Oh, this awful hush. It seems impossible that voice is stilled, which I have loved to hear for 50 years. Always I have felt I must have Mrs. Stanton's opinion of things before I knew where I stood myself. I am all at sea. So she's like, I don't even know how to fucking think without her. She's like, I, she was so lost. Because again, like, she was the philosopher behind the movement. So, like, as bold and brash as, like, she did have good ideas herself, obviously, Susan B. Anthony, but she was, like, she was my lighthouse. Like, right. she was fucking steering my ship. Like Susan was the megaphone. Yeah, she was. 
Um, but, you know, she was a deity to her Jack Kelly, you know, if you want to take it that route. <laughs> I wasn't going to go Newsies, uh, but okay. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Um, so she loses her best friend. She's still working, but a few years later, Susan B. Anthony died at the age of 86 of a heart failure and pneumonia in her home in Rochester, New York, on March 13, 1906. At her birthday celebration in Washington, D.C. a few days earlier, she had spoken of those who had worked with her for women's rights. She said, there have been others also just as true and devoted to the cause. I wish I could name everyone, but with such women consecrating their lives, failure is impossible. And that last line, failure is impossible, became kind of something that a lot of women's rights organizations like picked up and really ran with. Mm. Like, yeah, failure is impossible. We're not taking no for an answer. Mm. Um, Susan did not see the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, but she was still extremely proud of the work that they had done. In 1979, she became the first U.S. citizen to appear on a coin And she's had all sorts of, like, women's hall of fames, organizations named after her. Like, the 19th Amendment is, like, referred to as, like, the Susan B. Anthony Law. Right. So the first U.S. female citizen to appear on a coin? Or first ever? It just said citizen. Okay. Because, I mean, I don't know what they were putting on coins before But I guess, like, you know, if you're talking about, like, I think she maybe was the first Um, one that wasn't a president. Not a, like, okay. I think. Okay. Or, like, a politician Uh, I didn't get that far in the coin podcast because I'm sorry it was... Terrible. I know there's like a name for coin scientists. I like, said it a thousand times. I'm so sorry for you. And that I mean, you exist. Do, do I collect quarters? Yes, I do. Do you have all but the states? I don't listen. And by collect them, I mean I love them and I put them in a jar in my house. Oh, I don't even have the book. I use them for like parking meters most of the <laughs> I collect them and then recycle them. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe she, I think she was like the first citizen ever. Man or or female, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and of course, still to this day, women flock to her gravestone in Rochester, New York on election day to place their I voted stickers on her grave to thank her for getting us there and beyond. That one gets me. I know! <laughs> I teared up a little bit too. Because every time I see the picture, I'm like, oh my god. And like, I, I think I thought she died a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I knew that she never legally voted. Never saw it. Never yeah, legally it voted. Sucks. I know. Well, she did get arrested for voting, god. so that's fun. She did vote at least. She did, yeah. <laughs> I also, I, I love the um, the SNL sketch about her. so funny. Because it's like a, a group of women touring the Susan B. Anthony house. <laughs> and they're going through and they're like, I heard that if you like hold hands and say her name three times, like she'll appear. Like Bloody Mary. <laughs> yeah. And Susan B. Anthony appears and they're like, oh my gosh. And all the women thank her. And they're like, you're such a hero. We love you. And then Susan B. Anthony's like, yes, thank you. Just never forget women are equal to men. And they're like, yes, absolutely. And then the girls like turn like, okay, so do you guys want to split a cab back to the city? Um, how do you want to get back? Are we going to split an Uber? And they're like making plans. Like, should we get lunch afterwards? And Susan B. Anthony's just off to the side. And she's like, just never forget. <laughs> you have the right to vote. And they're like, okay, good. Like, okay, yeah. 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 Yes. I, yes. And like, <laughs> it is. 
funny. I love SNL. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so great. So watch that sketch if you want a little bit Susan B. Are we all action. are we all playing with cards? Yeah, or... yeah that's <laughs> Stop. And then one person, like, as soon as Cecily's wrong, trying to, like, order, like, a cab with her phone. And Susan B. Anthony's like, what is that contraption? She goes, Susan, I'm talking on the phone. Like, you're, you're being so you're rude. interrupting me. <laughs> oh, it's so great. So anyways, all right, are you ready for part two? I am. All right, we'll be right back. I can't wait. We're back, mm-hmm. and we're about to talk about Elizabeth Taylor. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just love her. She's I wonderful. I just love her. And, <laughs> like, I'm overjoyed to have done this research this week. It's been mm. a blast. I'm sure. It's so funny, because I thought I had her, and I looked, and I was like, God damn it, I got Susan B. Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, because no I look... No shade to Susan B. Anthony, yeah. but... <laughs> I know what you mean. Like, sometimes you look, and you're like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I looked at the list, and I was like, I can't believe Katie gave me Elizabeth Taylor. You must have been feeling gracious. I was feeling very gracious. <laughs> I was like, Allie has guts and guile. <laughs> so it's time. Okay. So... What do you know about <laughs> Lizzie Taylor? Okay, I know she had violet eyes. I know that she um, was a Hollywood starlet. She was in some really famous films. She played Cleopatra. I know that she was married a bunch of times. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like that's really like when I actually think about it, that's all I know. It's the same way I felt about Susan B. Anthony, and I know that she loved diamonds. That's so funny. funny. Yeah, uh, but that's it. She's um, such a starlet. Yeah, and she had a, like a, what was her perfume? It was called White Diamonds, I think it Do was. Do you know what's so funny? I yeah. asked producer what he knows about Elizabeth Taylor, and he said she was married a bunch of, bunch of times, she had lots of diamonds, and sold perfume. Yeah. That's the literal things you just said. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Well, because she used to have commercials be like, White Diamonds. Yeah. And it'd be like, Elizabeth Taylor, like, <laughs> because perfume commercials are insane. Who are they selling to? <laughs> Who? Have you Who? Ever seen... Okay, not to bring up SNL again, but there's a really funny perfume parody <laughs> where it's a perfume called Red Flag, and it's Kristen Wiig in a red dress walking around like a gala, and she goes, "Yeah, I lived in Vegas." A red flag. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'm a dancer. Red flag. <laughs> That's hysterical. It's a really good one. Yeah. The perfume and cologne commercials are bananas. Yeah, because I'm fucking crazy. I wonder actually if Elizabeth Taylor is the reason perfume commercials are bananas. I think it must yeah, be. Yeah, it's gotta she be because a trend. she's bananas. She goes, let's do everything over the top always. <laughs> Which is yes, Miss Taylor. Why I love her. She's always a hundred all the time. Okay. All right. What are we drinking? Okay. So we're drinking a drink called Classically Classic. Mm. And it is violet, of course course mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's an ounce and a half of gin and 
seven, five ounces of creme de violet, which is a oh, lot, right. mm-hmm. but that's what the recipe called for. Like Very I was basing fragrant. it off of other <laughs> recipes, but then I topped it with white wine mm-hmm. and it's in like, um, a cut wine glass with a sugared rim. And I used like lime juice to get the rim sugared. Wow. Um, I squirted some simple syrup in there. And then just to give a little extra boost of color purpley, we put in slow gin. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to, yeah. but it wasn't purple enough. No, it wasn't. <laughs> this is great. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Very finely. It actually, yeah. it ends up tasting like purple candy. Yeah, it's really it nice. It, it doesn't like... taste too floral. It's violety, but it's not like so much that I'm gagging back. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like drinking a bottle of perfume, but mm-hmm. it's really not. I think it's because of um, no. <laughs> uh, blackout. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um, it's nice. It actually, it can it tastes like I know that this is not an insult. It tastes like an old fashioned candy. Fun, like you you could unwrap at your grandma's house. Yes, exactly. Just like Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) Yeah, to eat in the theater. (laughs) Classically classic, darling. She is so like. Remember when we did Twiggy a few weeks back, and Tyra was like, "Usually when you meet a star, they're like, oh, darling. Mm -hmm. This is who they're talking about. (laughs) This, this is the person. Sort of the trend. I mean, (laughs) honestly. Okay." Elizabeth Taylor, I watched the documentary, multiple documentaries, because Mm -hmm. I was just like, I want to see, there's so much happened in her life. I was like, I want to see what keeps getting repeated so I know what the important things are. Because she was like in the time in Hollywood where there were a thousand movies coming out a month. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't bring them all up. So if I am excluding your favorite Elizabeth Taylor story, just remember that she's lived seven lives in the time that most of us, she's a cat. What's the Madonna clause? It's so much. I mean, she's literally a cat on a hot tin roof. Um, so literally. Give us a break! <laughs> okay. You're right. That was um, a great pull. <laughs> great pull. Loved it. Quick-witted. Perfect. Okay. Elizabeth. That's what they call me. <laughs> a great pull. Yeah. A great catch, I think, is what you're going for. No? Yes? No. No. Okay. Elizabeth Taylor not Katie Stanton, was born on February 27th, 1932 in London, England. London! Did you know that? I thought she was a tried and true American. Well, wow. You're wrong. Very wrong. But so did I. So here's why we all think that. She was born in London, England at Heathwood, which was her family's home, and she received dual British American citizenship at birth. So she is both British and American because her parents parents are originally from Kansas and they're expats. Oh, okay. So So you can just do that? Yeah. Okay. You can get both. I know. Well, I guess if your parents are citizens, okay, it's not that hard. Right. But like then they they had also like lived in Britain for a while. while. So she could also get British citizenship. Okay. So, um, her birth was not an easy one and she didn't open her eyes for the first 10 days. <gasps> they were brewing. They were all oh brewing. They were not done cooking in the tummy. eyes. <laughs> what a mystery. And then they pop open. Mm. And of course her mom's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. And I mean, they're the classic, like, um, so deep blue that they look violet. And she has that also, 
um, genetic thing where she has double eyelashes all oh. the way around on top and bottom. What a bitch. Honestly. <laughs> honestly, what a bitch. <laughs> That's the thing I do love about her eyes is like sometimes they look gray. Sometimes yeah. they look blue. Sometimes they look purple. Like they are gorgeous. It depends on like the angle and the picture. And this is like and before, the weather. Right, before people use filters the way they do now yeah. to like bring things out. Like she just literally looks like that. Yeah, I will say I am so sick of people putting filters on, like, old Hollywood celebrities to make them look, like, modern. Like, people keep doing it to Carrie Bradshaw. I'm like, can you fucking stop? Like, that's what she... She was pretty to start with. Right. Like, stop doing Also, this. everybody else, stop doing, like, the face app. You don't need that. Mm-hmm. You can, like, filter your photo to bring out colors, but you just look weird. Stop. Yeah. There's a girl I know who only ever does that and it's like bananas we, we all me. know yeah we all, we, we all know <laughs> it's a filter. everybody knows you don't look like that yeah. <laughs> anyway not the problem okay her dad is francis len taylor and he's an art dealer and her mom is sarah southern who's a retired stage actress mm. so runs in the family like i said they're originally from kansas but moved to london in 1929 and opened an art gallery they had their son, Howard, that same year, and then Elizabeth was born three years later. Okay. So her family had been in London for four years. She said that her home was like living in a lovely suburb, even though they lived, like, in the heart of London. And they also had this, like, country home on the side where they had chickens and dogs and ponies. Oh. And Elizabeth loves animals. Loves them. Like, she is a horse writer she's an equestrian loves horses just her favorite her mom was determined to make her a lady so she wanted her to live in england forever and for her to marry a man with a title so she was all about social mobility um and just wanted her to live with wealthier people in a higher class okay so Her mom's conscious about that, sending her to dance lessons, making her learn how to be a proper lady. She's in London, surrounded by her parents' social circle, which includes artists and politicians, and she's attending a Montessori school. Elizabeth Montessori, who will never cover her. (laughs) We hate her. (laughs) She's certainly not coming next season with her (laughs) current plan. I know. It'll be crazy. We'll see. <laughs> she was neither us put her on our list. Neither going to do it, right? So she was also raised as a Christian scientist, which is interesting. So was Ellen, really? Yeah, we covered that in her episode. Oh yeah, Ellen yeah, yeah, was yeah, Christian yes. scientist. Right. Which yeah. is, I mean, it's an interesting group. It's kind of like an offshoot, kind of like the Quakers. Mm-hmm. Very neat. Mm-hmm. So in 1939, the Taylors returned to the United States because obviously there's a war a brewing in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was sad. They didn't want to leave, but they knew they had citizenship somewhere else. So it was really convenient for them to get out of there. Yeah. And at first, they were at their grandmother's house in Pasadena, California for a while. And then her father opened a new art gallery in Los Angeles. So he's a really successful art dealer. He's going from London to Los Angeles and doing it pretty seamlessly. Mm. And the Taylors settled in Beverly Hills. Mm. So they're in 90210. Mm. They're okay. Her mother thought, okay, well, now the tables have turned. My goal is not to get Elizabeth to marry a man with a title. My goal is to make her, like, a Hollywood star, like Shirley Temple. Or, like, because fame in America is like having a title in England. Right. So 
They're in California and her mom's frequently telling her, you should audition for films. And I mean, she's like eight years old. (laughs) She's like, your eyes are so beautiful and the art gallery is doing great. Let's just go take you to some auditions. So Sarah takes Elizabeth and they audition for Universal Pictures and MGM. Both studios offer Elizabeth a contract. (gasps) And Sarah Taylor picks the offer from Universal. Elizabeth began her contract in 1941 and was cast in a small role in There's One Born Every Minute, which there's not because Elizabeth Taylor's one in a million. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, how old is she? She's nine years old. I did not know that she started that early. She is like the the first successful transfer from like a young to adult actress. I was going to say, I feel like it's like her and like Natalie Wood. And it's like Natalie Wood was in like the same boat. Right. Unbelievable. We also have to do her. Oh my okay. gosh. Don't yeah. take it. Next from me. I won't take it. You can have it. I'll do this. You do that. Got it? Got it. I call her. <laughs> Damn. Five. Because <laughs> there's a murder. You love murder. I'm I mean, sorry. you hate it. Continue. Yeah, I hate the idea hate, of it. I just love it. Yes. <laughs> okay. She didn't receive any more roles that year, though, and it was only, like, a one-year contract. You know how they did trial contracts? Mm. So Universal terminates that contract. The film director explained that she didn't really have anything for her because, surprise, she looked too old. Yeah. She had a mature face as a kid, and that's why they were getting rid of people like Judy Garland and Shirley Temple. They were like, you just look too old, which they're contemporaries of hers, like yeah. working in Hollywood. She's nine. You're too old, honey. Yeah. <laughs> honey. Your star has burnt out. <laughs> Your face is just too angry for this <laughs> business, honey. She, um, her career wasn't over, though, because her father has these acquaintances because he's working in L.A., and a producer from MGM arranged for her to audition for a minor role in Lassie Come Home, <gasps> the first Lassie film, which required a child actress with a British accent, oh. which is what she has. <laughs> it's great. Perfect. Tailor made. Now, oh, literally. Oh, <laughs> I made that joke ah, later in my damn it. <laughs> I love it. I literally did not do that on purpose. Um, but <laughs> I always thought that that's just like how Elizabeth Taylor talked. I didn't know that she had a lingering yeah. British accent. I thought she was just like so boisterous. <laughs> like I had no idea. What well, kind of feels like a classic like mid mid Atlantic accent, yeah. which apparently was like not a thing, and they just like <laughs> made it up in Hollywood probably after Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, she does her screen test with a mop as Lassie. (laughs) (laughs) And they offer her $100 a week to come and do Lassie. Meanwhile, Lassie is making $150 a week. (laughs) So, she's getting paid less than a dog, a literal dog. And after this three-month trial period, they offer her a seven-year official contract with MGM. Hold on. Was she in Lassie Come Home? Yeah, she's the little girl. <laughs> what? She's I the, didn't know she was in that. She's the little brown-headed girl. The little oh baby girl. God. Isn't that adorable? That's Lassie. really cute. Yeah. She's I like, like that. I'll take care of him for you. Yeah. It's so I mean, cute. Thank God she was the kid in the well. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Batman. Exactly. Bruce Wayne in the well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I went... Off the charts. Okay. So, after that, she 
goes and does a couple uncredited roles. Like she was Helen in Jane Eyre. <laughs> uh, which is like the little orphan girl who gets really sick and is like Jane Eyre's best friend and like dies on screen. And she wasn't even named in the credits. <laughs> But everybody's like, every scene she's in, you can't look at anything no, else. Yeah. She's just so stunning. It's like Vera Ellen and White Christmas. You're, you're like just you like, literally can't look at anything You gasp. Yeah. <laughs> every time she walks on set. Um, Allie, also, I would like to tell you, sorry to make this episode a thousand years long. I love it. I gasped audibly when we drove up to your house last weekend for family dinner. Isn't it you beautiful? you did such a good job decorating for Christmas. <gasps> I was like, <gasps> <laughs> that's the house. <laughs> That's the one. Just want to let you know, that was the last time I audibly gasped. Mm. It's a White House. It's not the White House. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I tell people. It does have reindeer on the roof. <laughs> there are reindeer. Um, no South Lawn, though, so yeah. I'm still working on it. Um, one, but a house there. So. <laughs> Another White House. So, at age 12, she was selected to star in her first big role. As a girl who wanted to compete in an all-male jockey event, so she disguises herself as a boy, <gasps> and she calls this the most exciting film of her career, oh! because she is with horses, and she loves horses, and they needed a little girl with a British accent who could ride horses really well, <gasps> so she does it, and she oh my kills God. it. I love that. I also like, I think it's just a cool, because they probably weren't doing a lot of stuff like that because it's probably taboo. Right. You know, like a boy. She's trying to be a boy. boy. And I just, I love that. Yes. And at first, she tells MGM, I want this part. And they're like, you're too young. And she like unabashedly campaigns for herself to get this role at like 12 years old. Her. Exactly. And then. They're like, okay, and they wait a couple months so she can get a little bit taller. Because keep in mind, she has to pretend to be a teenage boy. So she has to at least be, like, semi-close to their height. They eventually say yes, and they let her do it. And, I mean, she is doing the best she possibly can. It's called, like, a National Velvet or something, this movie. Mm-hmm. It's super-duper cute. At some point during filming, she does fall off her horse and severely injure her back, but doesn't tell anyone <gasps> because she doesn't want MGM to, like, pull her. And this is going to be a problem for the rest <gasps> of her life. Okay, I just said I just gasped for the first time recently. I'm not even now you twice did it again. in, like, ten seconds. <laughs> and it's great. Oh my god. Um, and her mom would like stand off set and like give her hand signals of like what to do and when. She's trying to please her mom. She's trying to please MGM. Everything's crazy. And she's practicing riding all the time. They're doing the teeth thing with her. You have to wear braces. We're pulling your baby teeth. Oh my god. The goddamn flippers. Right. We're making you look crazy because you're there like they want to dye her hair. They want to change her eyebrow shape. They want her to go by the name Virginia in the credits. (laughs) And her family's like Like, absolutely not. That's really super weird. Everybody loves the name Virginia. There's a woman named Virginia in our church and my dad would always come up to her and be like Hey, Hawaii, how's it going? It's like, David, my name's not Hawaii, it's Virginia. And you'd be like, okay, Texas. It's <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Gigi. I had a girl named Virginia in my class that went really? by Gigi. That's yeah. cute. It is cute. I like that. I'm also going to totally look up what she looked like in this movie. Yeah, it's really, it's really adorable. So her first film, this film, is a box office success. <laughs> and it released... 
What? You gasped again. Sorry. <laughs> She's so cute, She's right? She's just so pretty. I know. And at its release, the New York Times stated that her whole manner in the picture is one of refreshing grace. And the nation said she is a repository of beauty. I hardly know or care if she can act or not. Oh. <laughs> I just, just don't care. She's so cute. I like so cute. So Elizabeth later said, "Hey, hey, hey that bitch can get it. Like, <laughs> she she can what? get it at twelve. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that when she's twelve. That's I'll say fine. When she's older. Okay, I'll tell you when. Okay, I'll tell tell you when me she, when. When she's eighteen, I'll let you know. Tell me when. Okay. And then. Elizabeth later said that this is when her childhood ended, when she oh, became no. a star. MGM, as we know, <laughs> controls everyone and everything mm-hmm. and every aspect of her life. This is where she went to school." These are the only kids that she knows. Wasn't she in the class with like Mickey Rooney and I think so. Ju- Judy Garland? They I'm were all like positive. going to school together because we brought that up in a couple other episodes. The studio is like a factory of children yeah. with this daily schedule. And that's all she did. Dance class, singing classes, school during the day, film at night. You have no freedom. You don't have a childhood anymore. But she is in a blockbuster hit and is now America's like little sweetheart. Um, her salary goes like way up at this point to like from 100 a week to like 700 a week. And she ends up getting cast in other successions of Lassie movies. The studio also helped her publish a book about her little pet chipmunk that she loved so much called Nibbles and Me. Adorable, right? Nibbles and me. And apparently to these little school classes every day, she would bring like her pet squirrel or like she would bring like a ferret. She loved having animals. I did not know she loved animals that much. Like a real, but then she like still wears mink like a psycho. (laughs) (laughs) Like I don't, it's like, she's very comfortable. Lizzie, get your story straight. (laughs) She didn't know what her story was at all. (laughs) So when she, the studio hasn't told me, so I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know what to do really nice. When she turned 15, MGM's started to try to cultivate a more mature public image by organizing photo shoots and interviews that portray her as a normal teenager attending parties and going on dates but she wasn't (laughs) actually they're just like sending out photos that look like she is she doesn't actually dating people but it's like look at lizzie taylor getting in the back of joe bobby's corvette exactly you know and it's like her like stepping in but then like step right back out you get back in the house get in the house you're not allowed to go to the the county football fair (laughs) none of that county football (laughs) that's what i feel like kids go to right the county football extravaganza of california you get your butt right back in the house (laughs) get out of there it's like america's next pop model but forever (laughs) exactly i mean and it goes on forever so isolated and i mean film and gossip magazine are really starting to compare her to older actresses, which is good, like Ava Gardner and Lana yeah. Turner. And that's what they want. It's a bad transition. It's hard when kids don't transition fast. We see what happened to Shirley Temple, mm-hmm. you know? And then Judy Garland transferred too fast. She was too old. Yeah. So they're trying to make this very smooth. They're learning their lessons. So <laughs> <laughs> They're testing on the other girl. Right. This is the one. She's going to be the one to go all the way. <laughs> and she does. Like the Yankees. <laughs> Okay. Good sports reference, Katie. (laughs) There you go. 
I have eaten a lot of trail mix today. That's great. I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh. In 1947, she's cast in several roles where she's like a teen with a little more sex appeal. She's like dating and kissing people. But her very last adolescent quote unquote role is as Amy March. <gasps> in Little Women. She did do that. Uh Uh-huh. And it wasn't as successful as the 1933 version, but she's a great Amy March. She's beautiful. She's classic, kind of whiny. You want to love her. You want to hate her. You're not sure why. She's a perfect Amy. She is a perfect Amy. I never thought about that before because I think it was Catherine Hepburn was Joe March, correct? Uh And I feel like I, yeah, Elizabeth Taylor and Florence Pugh, I can totally see them playing the same roles. Like, right. Just like you're like, you are so fucking pretty and I don't quite know why. Yeah. Your face is really appealing to me. Really, really appealing. And then you can also believe, right, that she's going to get the boy. You believe it. You can believe it. Over Joe. And you're supposed to love Joe, but for some reason you still believe it. And that's the thing I think is tricky to get with Amy. And I think that Florence and Elizabeth did it correctly. In that, like, at the end of the the book, the movie, whatever, you're not supposed to hate Amy. You're supposed to be like, I get it. I get it. Right. Okay. Like, yeah, maybe they are a better fit, like Amy and Laurie. Like, maybe they did, were supposed to be in love. Yeah. all along yeah i yeah i think um a good amy is hard it's a hard, hard to part find. to play it's hard to play hard to find because she's oh, gotta be just right that's gonna be the title of my autobiography a good amy <laughs> a hard amy to find yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an amy in a, between a rock and a hard place let's just name it over and over So in 1948, MGM organized her to actually go on a date with a champion football player. No, thank you. (laughs) I know, Glenn Davis. The following year, she's briefly engaged to this guy, William D. Pauley, who's like the son of an ambassador. (laughs) And then this like film tycoon, Howard Hughes, also wanted to marry her and offered to pay her parents a six-figure sum of money (sighs) to become her wife. And they're like, absolutely not. And then also she's like 16 17 years old and really believes in love that's gonna be crushed pretty shortly but she really does believe in it she wants to get married and have kids and she actually sees getting married as her way out of the thumb of control of her parents (gasps) and out of the thumb of control of mgm if i can get married then my husband's in control of my finances not these people Mm -hmm. so in 1950 she transitions into her adult life she turns 18 and she does a film with co-star montgomery cliff and she has this massive massive crush on him but montgomery cliff is not interested in the opposite sex and you know how i know that sex in the city yeah (laughs) is that how that's so funny yeah they go around and it's like a game that miranda's dates friends play with all Mm -hmm. of his like the guy's dates Mm -hmm. and they go what old movie star would you like to have sex with and some person always says montgomery cliff and they go he was gay yeah that's how i know yeah that episode sex i know exactly what episode (laughs) you're talking about but 
Elizabeth Taylor helps keep this private for him because at this time, <gasps> you can't like you can't you can't you be can't openly gay. Right, it's a death sentence for your career. Exactly. So she helps keep it private, but the unrequited love is really hard for her, and it makes her yearn even more for a marriage and a family. So she starts dating Conrad Hilton <gasps> Jr. of the Hilton. Hotel chain. Do you mean Paris's grandfather? <laughs> I mean, I know him well. That's exactly what I mean. I don't know him at all. He is charming. He's rich. He's heir to the hotel chain. And she ignored every goddamn warning about his temper and his drinking. Red and flag. <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> that's where she got the perfume idea. <laughs> White diamond. Red flag. Hilton family. <laughs> And she says yes when he proposes after four months of dating. Four Four months! months. Lizzie, come on! Oh, honey. Honey. (laughs) You started Samantha so quick. That's our third girl (laughs) reference. We've had SJP, we've had Miranda, now we've got Samantha, we've got to sneak into Charlotte. Wait, we'll find it. Oh, honey, I already did a Charlotte when I said guts and guile. Oh, damn, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Not even listening to me. <laughs> There's a lot of hours of us. I can't listen to all of you. Five thousand six hundred hours last year. You wasn't minutes. I mean, yeah. Spotify reports came out. Pretty cool. <laughs> Pretty cool. But also bananas. How this is my life. <laughs> this is all we do. <laughs> so Elizabeth uh, is. Now married to Conrad Hilton Jr., who goes by Nikki because his dad is Conrad Hilton. <laughs> Love that. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a highly publicized ceremony. The event was organized by MGM. I hate that. <laughs> and used as part of publicity for her upcoming film about called Father of the Bride. So she's going to be a bride in this film. Hold the phone. Like the Steve Martin Father of the Bride? Was that like yeah. a remake? Yeah, the Steve Martin Father of the Bride's a remake from Father of the Bride. I didn't know that. Yeah, Steve Martin, I think, only does remakes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. We're coming out hard against Steve Martin. You know how I hate Steve Martin. I also, fun fact, while my mom was giving birth to me, Father of the Bride starring Steve Martin was on TV. And my dad had to leave the room because he so firmly believed that I was a girl. And, like, they didn't get any sort of... They like, didn't know ahead. They didn't know ahead of, with any of their kids. Mm-hmm. And, like, my dad was like, we're going to keep going until we get a girl. And then they got a vasectomy right afterwards. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but he would... Father of the Bride was on, and he was like, I fucking know this is a girl. And he goes, that movie's on. I can't be in here. Yeah. And then he was the Father of the Bride two months yeah, ago. Yeah, two so. months ago. Perfect. <laughs> he had to wait a thousand years. <laughs> Literally one thousand years. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Another Twilight reference. So, (laughs) the event. It's organized by MGM. It's crazy. Box office success. They're making, like, millions of dollars off of her movie because of her wedding. They go on a honeymoon to sail. This is her first husband. That's where we are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interrupting too much for this nonsense. Okay. Honeymoon. They're on the Queen Mary for three months in Europe. Hilton, very quickly, like, a week in is bored by his sexually inexperienced bride. She I just, hate him! I know! What? It's terrible. So uh-huh. he goes off to, like, casinos on the ship and is, like, drinking his ass off, and she is too embarrassed and 
ashamed to tell anybody and is just in such despair and self-doubt that uh, she files for divorce only six months after they were married. They are granted the divorce within eight months of their wedding. No, thanks. I hate that for her. I'm so sad. I am too, because she really wanted this. And it's also like, it's what happens when like, this guy's like, probably been like sleeping with like, like probably like a lot of sex people forever, whatever, you know, people forever. And like, she's not allowed to, she's not allowed to. So it's like you, it's against the, the Madonna horror complex right. of like, you, you know what? I'm going to say it again. It's what happened to Charlotte in her first marriage of like, Trey thought of her as too virginal to sleep with. Right. So then like, he couldn't get fucking hard. And then yeah. like, that's what's happening for her first marriage. She's like, you wanted a squeaky clean bride. And that's what I am. So why don't you like me? Yeah. Is what she's asking. She's like so upset. So then because of this, this divorce, like MGM casts her in like a couple B films as like punishment for like, ruining ruining her, this perfect marriage they right, set up and like and ruining her perfect name to put on all the fronts of all these movies so then she it's 1951 she's in george stevens a place in the sun and um they actually asked her to act for the first time since the horse movie she's like thank god i'm not just like showing up the and being face. the pretty girl yeah. i hate that because she really does like acting and it was based on a novel called An American Tragedy about a spoiled socialite who became a poor factory worker or like came between a poor factory worker and his pregnant girlfriend. And you believe it because she's so pretty. And the critics are like, wow, we didn't know she could do that. <laughs> and everybody keeps like, every time she puts out a movie, it's like people forgot she was good at what she did. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing because every time they're like, whoa, that was good. Like, they didn't yeah. see the last one where it was also good. Yeah. And then people are just like, oh, it's just because she's pretty. After that, they sent her to London to do this huge historic epic. And she hates doing historic movies. And we'll talk about that <laughs> later. I was going to say, does she know what's coming? Yes. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> she was reportedly not happy with the size of her role or the project in general. But that wasn't the most important thing. While she's there, she met the 38-year-old Mike Wilding and is so smitten. Oh. He is twice her age, and she is pursuing him. And he's, at first, he's like, come on, you're like 10. Stop. No. <laughs> but then he's, like, actually amused by how much she is pursuing him. And she is now signing her second seven-year contract with MGM, even though there's bad blood brewing. Because she marries very quickly Michael Wilding and is pregnant with her first child. <gasps> like, right away. Oh my God. Right away. And the thing is, she needs the money. So they offer her, like, $5,000 a week, which is today would be, like, $45,000 a week. And they're like, we'll give you and Michael a loan for a house. And we'll give him a three-year contract as well. And due to her family's literal dependency on MGM, she has to sign this other contract. So she has her son, Michael Howard Jr. in 1953, and is apparently just like a wonderful mother. She loves kids the same way she loves animals and just loves doting and helping people. Like when people would come into work with like hangovers, she would be like, let me fix you some tea and like take care of them. She's just adorable. 
So she's constantly making movies for MGM and she's sometimes put on loan to Paramount. They would like loan her out for some money, which seems like slavery to me. A little bit. It's weird. It, she calls yeah. MGM slavery too. Yeah. And like a penal system. Well, and again, it's good. Like, I feel like it's just like a real strong policing of your own actions and your career, which is yeah. not good. It isn't. So they cast her in a couple more films that are historic. And again, she hates them because there's too much costumes, too much makeup, and it made her get up too damn early. Well, and I'm sure the lines are more difficult too because they're set in a totally different time frame. Absolutely. During the production of some of these historic films, she becomes pregnant again with her second son, Christopher Edward. But then they're like, oh, because you're on maternity leave, we're going to add a year to your contract because you owe us more movies. I hate that. No! She Mm. owes them for the time lost being on maternity leave. The time lost. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly how they see it. This is why Elizabeth Taylor ended up like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they were treating her terribly. Yeah, as all female stars. Exactly. From the time she's nine years old? That's insane. Okay. By the mid-1950s, the film industry is beginning to face some serious competition from television. So what they have to do is make fewer films and up their quality, which is a refreshing change for Elizabeth because that's exactly what she's been asking for. Like, put me in good films instead of all the films. So she gets a role in the film Giant which is like a civil war drama, which they're trying to do because of like Gone with the Wind and they're like, it'll probably be really good. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for her to get the role because of what they called the burden of beauty. Nobody thought she was a good actress because they don't remember what she did in the movie. Because she's so pretty. She's yeah. so pretty. They think that's how she got the role. And she's like, no, I'm like yeah. actually good at it. Yeah. And people just didn't believe it. So this filming was tough. It was in Texas. Uh, the the director was really tough on her. He did not give her breaks, and he was like, "Listen, we're gonna do this to further complicate things." Her co-star was James Dean, and oh. in the middle of filming, James Dean famously got in a car crash only days after he completed all of his scenes. But then Elizabeth had to show up to work and film reaction scenes to her dead friend and there's not like she has to do it to finish the movie but this man that she's just been working with for months is now dead unexpectedly and young and tragically and now elizabeth taylor's dealing with this the movie comes out they say it's surprisingly clever and she has unsuspected gifts (laughs) they were suspected by the way they were suspected she knew they were there yeah so Elizabeth was nominated for the first time for this movie for an Academy Award and for Best Actress. She didn't win, but she was nominated. This is the end of Michael Wilding. As she grew older and more confident, she grew away from him. This is husband number two. He's kind, um, but his career was failing. And after Giant, she's like a really big success and she was away a lot filming so he starts to step out on their marriage and cheat on her and that's not cool with her no so they separate in 1956 and then she has to go under like an operation to remove some discs in her spinal cord because what they found out is when she fell off that horse in that original movie she broke her back and they never fixed it because she didn't tell anyone 
So now she's like, this is like 12 years later. She's finally getting her back fixed for the first time. So she's out and about doing her thing. And she meets the 49-year-old Mike Todd, who is a charismatic movie producer. He did Around the World in 80 Days, like the movie. He's like so fun. He's bold. He's like really into his sexuality. He met Elizabeth Taylor. And the first thing he said is, I'm in love with you. I'm going to marry you. <laughs> they were equals in force. They were, he's kind of bawdy. Mm-hmm. He's loud. Mm-hmm. And um, two days after she divorced Mike Wilding, she married Mike Todd. Two days. I love that. Debbie Reynolds is her maid of honor. No, and I love Debbie Reynolds. Eddie Fisher, who's the father of Carrie Fisher, is the best mm-hmm. man. Oh. Um, so that's great. And um, there, she's getting paid $125,000 a movie, which is not <gasps> unheard of back then. She's getting paid so much money. She is so happy with oh. Mike. She's never been happier. Everybody says, all they, do, I mean, you can see it in the videos of her at this time in her life. All she does is, I'm happier than I've ever been. This is the nicest man I've ever met. I can't wait to go home. He's so wonderful. So next in her life, she's Maggie the Cat in the movie version of A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, <laughs> the offer mentioned, mm-hmm. which um, she calls a career high point. Um, but it was kind of difficult in her personal life because... Mike is definitely the love of her life, and she gives birth to Liza Francis, their daughter. So now she has two sons and a daughter. Um, and Todd is like known for his publicity stunts. He's like calling in the media so that their marriage can have attention. He's throwing her parties at Madison Square Gardens. Everything's beautiful. Two weeks into filming Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He's like, babe, I have to go to New York. Do you want to come with me this weekend? Like, or no. And she's like, no, I really have to stay here. I've got the kids. I got to deal with this stuff. She wakes up in the morning to news that his plane crashed. (gasps) No. Over top of New Mexico. So her husband, who she is in love with, her third husband, who she just had a baby with, and she's filming this movie, is now dead. And she is like, Apparently, people came in to tell her, and she screamed and collapsed on the floor and didn't get out of bed for weeks. I can imagine, because, and it's it's interesting, because when you said, like, you know, when you talk about Debbie Reynolds and it was Bobby Fischer, it's like, I know what comes next. So I was like, how could, I, I, I questioned, like, I was like, how, but how could that happen? Because she seems so into this guy. She was so into this guy, and oh. he <laughs> died. That's so sad. It's so sad because she, I honestly think that he was her person and that this ended way, way too soon. But pressure from the studio and the fact that Todd didn't have huge savings kind of left her in a place where she had to finish Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So she, after two weeks bereavement, goes into work and finishes the film. During the production, her personal life became the subject of gossip because she turns to Mike's best friend for comfort. And at first, Eddie Fisher is giving her comfort. Then an affair started between Eddie Fisher, who obviously is married to one of America's sweethearts, Debbie Reynolds. And this changed her public image from grieving 
widow to homewrecker. This is very the Angelina Jolie um, story. It totally is because if there's someone you don't want to fuck with, it is Debbie Reynolds. Right. It is like she is an angel. Like she like don't fucking. Come there's no her. scar on her record yeah. at all. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. I just oh God that makes and like that whole story makes me so sad. It really does because it hurts more people than just. You know, yeah. her, then just Mike Todd, who passed, and just her children, then the Fisher children. Like, yeah. there's so many people involved. And, you know, it doesn't help that the cover of the movie, Elizabeth, is posing in, like, this white slip on a bed. You know, yeah. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is, like, a very sexual movie yeah. cover. And the public image of her is really, really slipping. Even so, she's nominated again for an Academy Award and for a BAFTA for her acting. She was uh, in a really rough place, but Taylor and Fisher end up getting married in Las Vegas in 1959. And they are ready to cash in MGM on her being a seductress. Now they're going to use it kind of against her mm. she later said that she married eddie because of grief like it wasn't a real real emotions yeah it was more like out of uh yeah just a, a need for companionship at the time of, of, of grief yeah and time of mourning for her so she was like we said earlier raised a christian scientist but both mike todd and eddie fisher were jewish and she actually converted to judaism in this time and says that she didn't really do it for either of them. She did it for herself and found a lot of comfort in this as an ancient religion. Over the years, she's been an active supporter of Jewish and Zionist causes and has purchased over $100,000 in Israeli bonds. And even some of her movies have been, like, turned away from Muslim countries. Oh, wow. Because of, like, how active she is in supporting Judaism. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, also she grew up like during World War II. So yeah. it's like a big deal. Mm -hmm. So then there's this movie called Last Summer. It's an independent production where she plays a severely traumatized patient in a mental institution. And the film's about mental illness, childhood trauma, homosexuality. But they promote it using Elizabeth's sex appeal. The cover is like her in a white bathing suit. Yeah. But that has nothing to do yeah. with the movie. But it works. And they yeah. make a ton of money. So, Elizabeth owes MGM one last film. This is her third seven-year contract. Oh my God. She's been for, with them for 21 years. And she's already in works talking to somebody else about Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. And um, they hand her Butterfield 8, where she's a sex worker. She doesn't want to do it. She turns it down. She says, I, I just really don't, I don't want to do it. And they say, you have no choice. Oh so she goes, she does it. It makes $18 million and she hated it. Hated it. Then she gets nominated for an Academy Award. She goes to the Oscars. She sits in the row, comes around. Who gets the Oscar? She does. This movie she hates. Hates the role. Hates that it's for MGM. Hates that they're using her sex appeal. Mm -hmm. That And she just goes up on stage and is like, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Thanks. And then just walks off. No speech. Thanks. She's so 
fucking pissed. She hates it so much. So can you imagine getting the biggest award in Hollywood and it's for something you're not proud of? That would be so difficult. It's it's because the other things she got nominated for, she really was proud of. And this one, she isn't. So she's completed 21 years with these people. And right after that, she made a big choice. 20th Century Fox was calling, like, will you play Cleopatra? And she goes, sure. I'll do it for, like, a million dollars. And if you give me 10% of all the costs ever. And they go, okay. <laughs> Making her the first actor of all time to earn a million dollars for gosh. a film. That's insane. Yeah. Firsty, firsty. <laughs> Not only that, she had them use the deceased Mike Todd's widescreen format. So she made money oh. off of the way that they made the film. That's incredible. The movie starts filming in 1960 in England, but they are trying to do Egypt in England, so they keep having to halt for bad weather, because that's ridiculous. And then, of course, Elizabeth's really bad health. She had severe pneumonia, and um, she collapses in her hotel room. They can't wake her up. She goes into a coma, and they have to do an emergency tracheotomy. She was given one hour to live, and newspapers reported her dead. And she said that her obituaries were the best review she ever got. Oh, <laughs> my God. It just so reminds me of, like, the 30 Rock episode where, like, Jenna Maroney, like, <laughs> died. Fake yeah, funeral. Yeah, fake funeral. Yes, yes, yes. Like, it's crazy. Um, But when she recovers, it's, like, a couple months later, Fox threw away what they had filmed. They go to Rome to make this movie. They get a new director and they get a new Mark Antony. And Mark Antony <laughs> is Richard Burton. Uh, the, we know him well. Oh, we do. The film cost $62 million to make at this point, which is more than has ever oh been God. spent on any movie. She's barred from entering Egypt because she's Jewish and they don't really like her as part of this film. Later, that's lifted because they were like, oh, this is good publicity for Egypt. But at this point, Life magazine called it the most widely talked about movie of all time. It's the first tabloid movie. The uh, film did become the biggest box office hit of all time making 15.7 million but it took years for the film to make back the money uh and fox nearly went bankrupt off of this which like i wish so then (laughs) such a big movie had so much potential she says but she's like they cut all the good scenes with all the good acting and made it a parade of me in costumes and she's like after i saw the screening i went and threw up in the bathroom because i was just like so disappointed in what came out of this um the the sets were expensive the costumes were expensive the delays were expensive fox actually blamed elizabeth taylor and richard burton's new affair for the movie um no thank you have you ever seen the scene of the professional like or, i'm sorry not yeah professional processional like it is so over the top it is so insane you're like you can't blame elizabeth taylor for this no apparently like one of the love scenes they were filming they're like kissing right mark antony and cleopatra yeah. and they're like cut cut (laughs) they had like three times before they stopped making out like they were so so in love and like they're both married to other people like this is not okay okay. um 
but they try to sue them. And of course that doesn't work out. <laughs> so she's married to Eddie Fisher, who she was just a homewrecker for that. And, or he could, he wrecked his own home. Let's not, he wrecked his, he own, wrecked his own, own home. He made a choice to cheat on his wife yes, with Elizabeth Taylor. She he, was single. I would like to say he took advantage of a grieving widow. Yeah. I don't know anything yes. about Eddie Fisher, but like. He wrecked his own home. Yeah. And, um, Richard Burton had been married to the same woman, Sybil, for 15 years. Now mm-hmm. he was a known cheater. He oh, cheated all okay. the time. And she just kind of like was cool with it. Cause that's like the thing he did. But rumors of this affair started circulating while the movie's going on and this became the era of celebrities not being able to have personal lives ever she's the first one that's really attacked by the paparazzi the scandal was so big that the pope publicly condemns richard and elizabeth and says that their relationship spits in the face of marriage the pope that's absurd. Okay, he can step the right fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You spit in the face of lots of things, Pope Ew, Sir. Lots of things. And like, then what happens is they're supposed to film this big scene in Rome where she comes in as Cleopatra carried among things and people uh-huh. are supposed to be screaming. And she's terrified. She's like, I'm going to go in there. Most of these Roman people are big Catholic Pope supporters and yeah. they're all going to be screaming at me. But instead, when she comes in, they're supposed to be screaming Cleopatra. They're all screaming for Liz. And they had to, like, sound it down in the movie because they just, like, love her. And they said this is when the 60s sex revolution started. Like, people were fine with their, like, flagrant abuse of marriage. Like, it did not matter. Everybody was like, yes, go for it. So... Taylor, very quickly, divorces Fisher. This is her fourth time. She's whatever. Burton really hesitates. He has a problem divorcing his wife of 15 years who's fine with him cheating on her. <laughs> He's like, He's like, I got it kind of good. So like, like things have been working out. And I think he really did not believe in divorce. And he really did believe in just cheating. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's a huge douchebag. But like this is, it was hard for him. But he does eventually divorce his wife and marry Elizabeth. And he adopts her two daughters, Liza and Maria Burton, who she... Adopted from an orphanage in Germany at some point. Okay. Yep. We're going to have to there do like we go. a kid tally at the end. <laughs> there's I'm a little lost. <laughs> there's, it's absurd. It seems like there's a lot. Yeah. Um, they were granted their divorce. They, after this, start their own, like, Taylor Burton film oh, industry. They star in 11 films together and Jet Set. They have diamonds and and paintings and luxury designer clothes and liquor and yachts and a private jet they are the industry these two dick and liz are like all there is yeah he's buying her every famous piece of jewelry in the world and she thinks it's because he loves her he is atoning for his divorce which is super sad together they earned a combined like $88 million in one decade in that time money. They are so famous. Gossip columns cannot get enough of these two together. But also, she and Richard are like super yelly. They're the type of couple that is like, fuck you, no, fuck you, and like throwing picture frames and then having like great makeup sex. And then the next day are like the most in love couple you've ever met. Like their passion is so real. 
And like you can't turn away from it. No, no, you can't. Yeah, you it, can't do it's that. so fun to <laughs> watch. So, great. so yeah. their love is crazy in a psycho way. Then together they make Who's Afraid of Virginia oh, Woolf? Together they made that. Yes. I didn't know that. What a famous movie. Yeah, and they're both in it. She is thirty-three years old, playing a fifty-some-odd-year-old drunk woman with <gasps> prosthetics. She gained weight. Uh, oh. She works so hard to be this crazy, older, drunk woman, and he is playing the husband, and she is screaming, and it's groundbreaking for its adult themes and uncensored language, and there's all these reviews of her performance. Some say it's the best of her career, and she did earn an Oscar for really? her role as Virginia oh, Woolf. I love that for her. I know. Like a real redemption it's, of like, this is something I'm actually And the proud thing is, of. she got to dress up as somebody not sexy and won the Oscar. Yeah. And that I think is more important to her than anything. It so is. It's like, I actually got here from my talent and not my fucking body or face. Exactly. Mm. So because of that, she is so proud of herself. She does something she hadn't before. She auditioned for The Taming of the Shrew, which is Shakespearean. Ooh, very and different. she was like, everybody's going to think I'm just like mocking them because I'm little old Cleopatra coming here yeah. with these famous British actors trying to be Taming of the Shrew. The Shrew is like a huge, bold character. Mm-hmm. But one of her co-stars goes, you know, I saw you as Virginia Woolf and you did all right. Just be yourself. And just like go <laughs> so just do it just do just do the role you'll yeah. be fine um her first role without burton since cleopatra um was to come out where she was starring with her friend clift but he died in the middle of the role oh, no. again she what keeps losing fuck? co-stars left and right she's That's really so upset sad. But then in the 60s and 70s, her career starts to decline. She doesn't really fit with new Hollywood. And the public is kind of tired of the Burton-Taylor romance. Because they've been married, you know, for like more than five years. Like, oh my god, we just cheat on each other already. Can you I'm please get married sick, again? I'm sick of it. Yeah. We're not ready for Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson yet. Right. We want drama. We're, we're crazy. <laughs> but her and Richard, with their rock star lifestyle, it's just too much drinking she's gaining a lot of weight she's on painkillers because her back and hips hurt so bad it's failed film after failed film after failed film and a lot of them did poorly some did okay but ultimately she's just like unsuccessful in this time liz and richard burton would fight and they're just so, so extra that um, he got caught having an affair with a co-star, which, surprise, that's what he did with you. Like, what do you think's going to happen? But she doesn't accept it like his first wife did. So now there's a problem. She wanted so badly for this marriage to work. Like, he would openly criticize her in front of people and she would let it happen so that the marriage would work. She did not want to get divorced again. But the two got divorced for the first time in 1974 (laughs) and she very quickly realized that she had made a mistake in divorcing him and they went to South Africa and got remarried in like a animal ceremony in South Africa um and then they're married for another like year and a half to two years before they're divorced again and this makes it her fifth divorce she's 44 years old with no prospects for the future she's alone for the first time ever 
and she's just devastated. Right, because this isn't, it almost feels like um, the first time ever it's not quite her leaving. Yeah. It's him, like, not him leaving, but like. They're just, she's just leaving she's, alone. Yeah, yeah, she usually she's leaves never with been someone else. Yeah. And this is uh, not the case with this uh, particular instance. Yeah. And he did say, like, shortly before he passed away, he's recorded as saying, I know I'm going to marry that woman again. Like they were like, they were supposed to be together. These two are the couple. Yeah. Like they're like the Ross and Rachel. They're like, right. On again, up, on again, on off again. Like, everybody like, knew <laughs> that they were supposed to get married again. And she had said after Richard, the men in my life were just there to hold my coat. <laughs> so like, it's really sad. Well, and let's be clear. Not after Richard, after fucking what's Mike, Todd. Mike Todd, Mike Todd. Af- after Mike Todd. Mike Todd like was her first big love, and then Richard was, like, the backup. I felt like, um, yeah, like, Mike Todd. If, if, and I know, like, I'm, I'm, t- I'm thinking a lot about Charlotte in this episode, mm-hmm. because, like, Charlotte, after she had her miscarriage, got really inspired by the story of Elizabeth Taylor mm-hmm. and her ability to go on after life. And, like, I feel like she did it in the opposite way that Charlotte did. I feel like Charlotte had her Troy. She had these other guys. And then she found her Mike Todd. Yeah. And and like Elizabeth lost him. He he died. Like, and she was like in her twenties. Yeah. Like it's so devastating. That's really upsetting. So she decides after she leaves Richard, to go to DC for the bicentennial. <laughs> and ah, how far away are we? <laughs> crazy, exactly 100 years. So she goes to DC for the bicentennial and um meets this handsome politician that would be like if you cast a politician in a movie, this would be him. He's like a cute Republican politician. And John F. Kennedy. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. But now he is sweet, he's quiet. He has horses. <laughs> and um, it was a welcome change of pace for her after, like, drinking every night with Richard. Um, six months later, they get married. <laughs> and she becomes the wife of a senatorial candidate. Okay. Very uh, big swing. So John Warner is a politician from Virginia. And they're married in 1976. And Taylor works on his campaign. Pretty much gets him elected she's like so charismatic she's a perfect politician um but after a while it's like not really fun anymore she wanted to curl up by his fireplace in his big old farmhouse and like live together happily with the record playing and dancing in front of their christmas tree but she calls it domestic suburbia because he was in dc married to his senatorial life and she was alone and she was bored. <laughs> like, she's so, so bored. So she starts drinking way too much and becomes addicted to alcohol. And people are like, what happened to Elizabeth Taylor? She's a blimp. She's like so big that everybody's talking about her weight on every tabloid. And she goes, okay, I'm so bored. I need to do something. So she decides, I'm going to go to Broadway. There we go. That's how you fix it. There we go. So she put herself on a strict diet and workout and on 
opening night in Broadway. She's back to her old self again. Okay. Her old, like, 50-something-year-old self. So, you know, the movie is, like, or the, the play is, like, her is, like, a killer, but she plays the killer in, like, a positive light. So she's, like, a positive female killer. Whoop, whoop. I love it. The show was sold out for six months, and the, the reviews weren't great, but, like, she did it. She did a Broadway stint. That's difficult. It is. Eight shows a, a week. week. That's fucking bananas. For six months. So... She always, after this, struggled with weight gain, addiction, and depression. So she realizes she needs to check into the Betty Ford Clinic. And she does. By herself. So she goes. I'm checking in. (laughs) Officially. And um, she and the senator divorce at this time after five years together, ending yet another marriage. She did get better from her health concerns and she did cameos on like a lot of soap operas and things like all my children. And there's these really cute, like, because they're filming, they have bloopers and she'll like mess up and be like, Oh, I'm sorry, dears. I'm not used to acting. (laughs) Like it's so cute when she messes up and everybody laughs. Like you can hear everybody off camera laughing. She's like, she's kind of in on her own joke. Yeah. She gets it. She's like a really funny, but also extremely depressing way. (laughs) It's really funny. Cause she is a really good actress. (laughs) And has done it for literally every day of her life. Oh my God. So after the divorce with the senator, she starts dating a string of men, actors, lawyers, businessmen. She's in California. She's running herself around. She's getting into exhaustion. Then Richard dies and she starts drinking again because she's like so upset that he's dead. And then she's getting brutal reviews and all of her family, all of her kids show up with an intervention. And they go, Mom, back to the Betty Ford Clinic. And she goes, okay, you're right. Goes back. 51-year-old checks herself in again. And she says that I hope other women will see this and think I can do that too to change my life. In the Betty Ford Clinic this time, she shared a bedroom. She waited in line for the bathroom. She helped sweep the floors and changed okay, the she's sheets. she's a regular ass person in here. She's okay. like, I'm ready this time. Yeah. I'm going to change do it. this. Um, she also wrote and published a book um, called Elizabeth Takes It Off about losing all her weight. <laughs> so, I mean, that should not be the prime thing no. in her life. But that's what she did. And that's the 90s, baby. There we go. <laughs> but... You know, this second time at the clinic, she meets this guy named Larry. He is several decades younger than her and a construction worker. What? And he's also trying to get off of the the drink. And they fall so in love. (laughs) Larry, 30-year-old Larry and 50-some-odd-year-old Elizabeth. (laughs) Nothing to start off a relationship. We're like, we'll be together, but we can't do this one thing that we both want to do. And that's the only thing we have in common. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They get married at uh, Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Because, of course, they're besties. I haven't brought it up yet, but they're so... 
much friends. I'm gonna be honest, I forgot about that part of her life. They're bestie, bestie friends. Pretty wild. It's so good. I couldn't include everything, everyone. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm a, so close big, to the end. Big, big, big story. Big life, big life. <laughs> really good friends with Michael Jackson. He's like the best man in like 18 of her weddings. And she, <laughs> she is like the maid of honor in like 62 of his. So it's really important. Okay, but this is the famous wedding where the paparazzi comes in with planes over tops and people parachute down. <laughs> this is the wedding where that happens, Katie. People, pa- the paparazzi parachuted into her wedding, her 18th wedding. I it's, just, I have no words anymore. It's for absurd. All this. <laughs> so this little boy got this little 30 year old construction worker boy got like hit by a truck with how much media. I mean, it is a media circus because shortly after this, she turns 60 and there's a 24 hour party at Disney world for oh her 60th birthday party, which is all I ever wanted. Well, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's it's, all it's, I want. It's kind of like what happens to like share and like share was dating like a normal ass person for a bit and like then like they got the media bamboozled them like and then she's on the simpsons which of course like we've covered a lot of famous women are on the simpsons yes. which is great i had to bring that up but also it's 1990s now and she was a really heavy smoker and they're like you have se- severe problems with your health you quit drinking, like, we're really proud of you, but also, like, you need to stop smoking because you're going to die. And she's like, well, I kind of want to, but fine. Right. So she stops. She and Larry, no surprise, do end up divorcing. Uh, and this is her last husband. Really? And the two remain in contact for the rest of their lives, even though they aren't together. She says, I was going in and out of surgeries. I'm a little older. I had all these health concerns. And it really kind of caused this divorce. Her health is deteriorating rapidly. He's young and now rich for the first time ever. And she's just like, I can't. So after five years, they end their marriage. She was um, brutal with the press. She was just always very straightforward with them. Like when she first started dating Eddie, she was like, Mike's dead. I'm alive. What do you want me to do? Sleep alone? She would just, like, say things like that to the news. So this time she was like, yeah, the drugs, the alcohol, my dead friends, my divorces, I get it. But damn, I'm lucky to be alive. Because people (laughs) just, like, drag her through it constantly. And she's like, would you like to be in my position where, like, everyone you love is fucking dead or dying? Yeah. Or, like, not talking anymore? And then everybody's trashing you publicly for every decision you ever make. And if you gain 10 pounds, like, people get on you. Like, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, like, she was kind of like a precursor, like, Britney Spears. Yeah. It's like, now it's like, I feel like we're knowing better and we're doing better, I hope. But, like... We're trying. Yeah, and I just feel like... We didn't know know back then. People like Britney were still dealing with that in the fucking 90s. Right. Of, like, you're scrutinizing my every move and then judging me for when I flip the fuck out because yeah. I can't live my goddamn life. I'm not allowed to breathe without you yeah. telling me what to do. It's really hard. So in the 90s, she really does start to get a lot of honorary awards and like lifetime achievement awards, which yeah. like tell you that the end is near. Mm-hmm. She got a Screen Actors Guild Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award. She really just wanted to go play pinball machines <laughs> on Santa Monica Pier, which is really cute because Same. she didn't get to yeah. as a kid. And, like, when she asked somebody to do that with her, they were like, wow, you actually never – you've done everything big, but we're never allowed to do anything. That's kind of like – yeah, it's kind of like you've done everything but. 
Right. And it's like you've done everything but live your fucking life. Yeah, you didn't get a life. Yeah. So her last film release was in 1994 in the Flintstones. She was Fred's mother-in-law. <laughs> so that's fun. Larry did um, fall off a balcony at one point in 1999 uh, and was in a coma for six weeks. And Elizabeth immediately called the hospital and said, I will pay for every single one of his medical expenses. This is construction worker Larry, who she's divorced from. She wrote him letters and they wrote letters back and forth for the remainder of her life. And they talked on the phone all the time. Her last call to him was in February of 2011, and they had been divorced for 15 years, but she left him $825,000 in her will. Elizabeth's life changed, though, in the 90s, as we know, when her dear friend was diagnosed with AIDS. And her life, she says, is as an AIDS activist, not as an actor. She would show up and hug people in AIDS clinics. It's like really bold for the time. I think people really bold how bold that was for the time because it was like if you touch them, you get it. You know, high society women wouldn't walk in front of AIDS clinics with like their baby carriages because they were like it's airborne. Yeah, it's like wow, it's not. It's not actually. Um, she was really frustrated that not. A lot was being done despite the news coverage because people believed that the disease was to punish gay people. That God was really punishing did. gay yeah. people. Yeah. And as we know, throughout her career, she helped um, keep many gay friends safe from media scrutiny. She said that she decided that if she could do anything with her name, then she could open certain doors that other people couldn't, and the people with AIDS deserved that. So she began her philanthropic efforts um, in the 80s and 90s, and for decades she started foundations. She paid for all of the startup and all of the funding so that every single inch of profit went to AIDS research. She testified before the Senate and the House um, for the Ryan White Care Act in 1986, in 1990, and in 1992, she went after Reagan and Clinton and Bush all for not acknowledging the illness. And she donated over $285,000 million to AIDS. <laughs> like, and it's $285 million is what she donated to AIDS or what she raised for a, the AIDS research. In the year 2000, because of her British citizenship, she was made a Dame Commander of the British Empire. And um, then she starred in These Old Broads, which was written by Carrie Fisher, her ex-stepdaughter. And Carrie Fisher cast both her mother and, so Debbie Reynolds, and, not, I was about to say Liza Minnelli, (laughs) and, my God, and Elizabeth Taylor in this. And together, they camped it up. I can't even imagine They did that. such a good job. And she would be like, oh, should I let my husband near you? And she'd be like, oh, that's so long ago. Like on set, like on camera. It's so funny. I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine doing oh that God. with the person who stole no. your husband? That would be like if Angelina Jolie and, and Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston yeah. did this together when they were older. Her last public performance was in 2007 with James Earl Jones. They performed love letters at an AIDS benefit. Taylor was the first celebrity to create her own collection of fragrances by launching two of the best-selling perfumes of all time, White Diamond. White Diamond. 
and passion. Taylor is considered an icon in costumes. Some of her most famous are a white ball gown she wore in A Place in the Sun, a Grecian dress in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, a green A-line dress in Suddenly Last Summer, and of course, her infamous slip in Butterfield 8. But her makeup as Cleopatra is what started the cat eye trend in makeup. Oh my Did you God. know that? I didn't, I didn't either. That. Crazy. Okay. Her jewelry collection is iconic and features some of the most famous gems in the world bought for her by Richard Burton. She owned the Krupp Diamond. She owned the Taylor Burton Diamond. She owned the Le- the Pellegrina Pearl. This woman. These, if you don't know anything about jewelry, I'm obsessed with gems. <laughs> I think they're very fun. And she owned some of the largest gems in the world that aren't owned by the crown jewels. Yeah. So um, she actually wrote a book about her jewelry, and it's the closest thing to an autobiography we have, <laughs> other than her chipmunk book. And it is called My Love Affair with Jewelry, and it came out in 2002. She also popularized Valentino and received Lifetime Achievement Awards from Glamour. After her death, she put in her will that all of her jewelry would be auctioned to benefit aid. Oh, that's amazing. And her jewelry broke records selling for $156.8 million. <gasps> her jewelry. The good that that does. Is unbelievable. Changes the world. She didn't yeah. just give it to somebody. She didn't just gift it to her children. Well, and I and I like that she chose that route of like, I want to make sure that it also increases in value over time. So mm-hmm. like, if she died when she was one age, it'd be worth this much. But if she right. died a few years later, it'd be worth even more. Right. And I like that she put that stipulation because she should have, she could have just left money, but she was like, no, I'm going to let them make the money that is appropriate in their time frame. Exactly. You know, because like a thousand dollars in uh, Susan B. Anthony's time is a lot different. Eighty thousand dollars now. It's right. like it's a lot different than a thousand dollars in Elizabeth Taylor's time. Exactly. So she had married eight different times throughout her life. Two times the same guy. <laughs> um, and marriage was the matrix by which we look at Elizabeth Taylor yeah, from the time she was, like, really little. But her health, when it began to decline in the 90s, they had to shave all of her beautiful hair off and remove a brain tumor. She dealt with oh skin God. cancer. She's in a wheelchair sometimes. And she was sad because all her friends were dying around her. She kept saying, why do all the good people die and I just keep going? She was hospitalized in February 2011, and in March, at the age of 70, she passed away. 70? 70. Holy fuck. I mean, literally two months before my younger daughter was born. Like, a couple months. Like, she was alive just a couple years ago. Wow. Her funeral took place, um, it was a private Jewish service, and at her request, it started 15 minutes late, because she hated (laughs) being on time. She was one of the last living stars from the classic Hollywood cinema era. She was portrayed as different from normal peers because her image was carefully crafted by MGM. And the way that she wielded her sexuality has been the subject of research. Her life is the focus of public attention. She never, ever had a private life. And no actor ever had a more difficult job of getting themselves accepted as being good at their job. 
even though her talent and range was really surprisingly wide. So I'm going to end on my favorite Elizabeth Taylor quote, which I posted on my own social media today. (laughs) The problem with people with no vices is that generally you can be pretty sure that they're going to have some pretty annoying virtues. Yeah, that's true. And that's the story of Elizabeth Taylor. The decade-long story of Elizabeth Taylor. It's also like, it is, um, and this is something that happens a lot of the women we do. It's so heartbreaking when you lay it down. You know, like domino to domino. Chronologically, it uh, hurts. Like, how do you go through that day after day after day after day? You also you make um, a lot of judgments about people for their best or worst moments, and um, you don't actually know. You don't really know what's going on. Hmm. So this is long. So let's pick like five things. Okay. In a little segment that we like to call "Just the Two of Us." Okay. I mean. I just, I, I want to start off with a strong point of, I feel like they unabashedly campaign for themselves. You said that in the beginning of like, I want to start on a positive because Elizabeth Taylor went in and like, she knew from a young age that she was good at what she was doing. And she's like, I know how to ride a fucking horse. I know how to act. And I want you to give me this job because of those things that I can do. And I feel like, Susan B. Anthony did the same thing, but for all women, she was like, we can do this. And I'm going to unabashedly campaign for the things that I know we know how to do. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to tell you I can. Yeah. Because I can. Exactly. And I agree. I think they both were big mouthpieces for what they wanted and what they believed. And they were not ashamed of what the press was doing to them. Yeah. Both of them were torn up part by the press. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> and then I find the contrast between never being married and being married so many times so interesting yeah. because I think they were both wielding womanhood. They were. At their times in history. Well, it's interesting because one of the things you said early on was like, you know, Elizabeth Taylor's first marriage was a way out for her. And in an ironic twist you know susan b anthony's non-marriage was a way out for her it was a way for susan b anthony to say like i will not submit to a man to sign contracts and to sign papers and to buy anything like because the world didn't know what to do with an unmarried woman in susan b anthony's time there were no rules for that and i feel like they also didn't know what to do in elizabeth taylor's time so they kind of forced her into marriage but it was also a good way for her to get out from underneath of her parents rule like it is a weird like way out of traditional like gender roles and a way in it's a really weird difference between the two of them and i and i mean in the same note like Susan B. Anthony really believed that women should have the right to get divorced and Elizabeth Taylor exercised that to the fullest I know like if we talk about an A to B that's totally true of like here's the person that was fighting for Elizabeth Taylor's right to literally exist as the person that she was right because the first guy was an abusive alcoholic Right. And if Elizabeth or if if Susan B. Anthony did not fight for those types of rights, then what situation would she have been in? Yeah. And that's the pro- that was the whole problem that Susan B. Anthony was fighting for in those divorce situations. Like yeah. a woman who needs to get away. 
Yeah, and I think um, the temperance issue is really interesting because as Susan B. Anthony was living in a time where, like, men went out and drank and came home and beat their children and their wives, and they were a fucking menace, and it was a real problem. And I think we talked about this in the Carrie Nation episode, but, like, I feel like one of the things that people don't realize is that, like, before this time period, it's like people were drinking kind of, like, wine and beer so it's kind of like these broad things but then spirits came in and they were drinking vodka like they were drinking beer so men were drinking like lunatics <laughs> which i think is something people don't take it and like, it was dangerous because it was, women didn't have the right to say no to anything to anything so women were getting abused sexually abused physically abused their children were getting abused like it was and they had no right to anything so yeah. Like, imagine being Elizabeth Taylor stuck in that first marriage forever and all of her proceeds for any of the movies she's in go right to him. Right. That's the situation that Elizabeth, or, um, that Susan B. Anthony is fighting against. She's like, no, women need the right to take control of their lives. True. And then Elizabeth Taylor imposed temperance upon herself. She did. She went yeah. to rehab. She said, I need to end this for me, which is a very interesting turn of events where she was the one saying, I am drinking too much mm -hmm. and I need to stop. No, absolutely. And, um, and I feel like it's the thing that, uh, is like drinking is the, one of the most difficult things to quit because it is such a, a, a social, social activity. Norm. You know, I think uh, John Mulaney puts it best because like he didn't drink for a long time. <laughs> like it's really hard because people don't know what to offer you. Like, do I'm you sorry, have a turn up for you? you? Like a turn up? <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's a really difficult thing because it is. I agree. Like, and I think too. I, we kept using the word slavery yeah. about MGM the same and, yeah. and the way that Susan B. Anthony was an abolitionist. And yeah. I think that obviously this beautiful white woman was not in slavery no. to the same extent as uh, African American and people of color in the U.S., but there is a type of work slavery that people in showbiz were put through it's it's more like indentured servitude, I'll say. So yeah. they were they were being paid, mm -hmm. and they could publicly like denounce um, an organization. But it is an indentured servitude that you are you have to fulfill. Yeah, and that's what Elizabeth was dealing with from the time she was nine until she was almost forty. Yeah. Well, and I also I wonder if things for Elizabeth would have been different if. Susan had gotten her way and established women's rights as early as she wanted to. Things would have been different. Because sure. they would have been. Because again, women didn't get equal status to men until 1920. Yeah. So like we have to take that into consideration. That is lost time. That is lost time. It's a lost time. And I feel like both of these women had that, but in like different ways of like I felt like Elizabeth was trying so hard for this social normative of like, I think she just wanted someone she could come home and love. Yeah. And I think she wasted a lot of her time looking for that. I agree. And it makes me really sad. It does make me sad too. Like I, I feel actually bad for both of them because yeah. I do feel bad that Susan did not get to see the end result of her work and she yes. knew it. She knew she it. She knew it was coming. And like, well, and that's the, 
that's the unfailing hope that they both had. Failure is impossible. Failure was impossible for both of them. And I think it's true in the sense that Elizabeth knows she's like, you know what? I don't know. Like (laughs) I'm adding this quote to her repertoire, but she's like, if a man won't love me, generations will. And it's true. People love Elizabeth Taylor. She is a beloved icon. And so is Susan B. Anthony. And I feel like they're both seeing kind of the broader picture of their lives, which is unfortunate when you are forced to give up your life for something. Susan and Elizabeth gave up a lot for their lives. For and, their um, cause. For their really. cause. And uh, I don't know. It's um, it's also interesting how different that looked literally and almost exactly 100 years later. Yeah. Which I think is wonderful. It is. And really wild. So. Mm. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to toast these women? I am. Okay. Who would you like to toast this evening? I want to toast uh, people who keep going when it seems like everything is going to fail yeah. or fall apart or when everybody tells you that you're not doing it correctly. Oh, yeah. Because I think. I think both these women were told you're doing it wrong and they were like, actually, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. So cheers to people who keep going. Cheers. And you? I'm going to toast women who want it all. I And I actually think this really rightly applies to both of them. I think that, you know, sometimes like, Susan B. Anthony gets a bad rap because, like, she opposed the 15th Amendment, which was fucked up. But, like, she was, I didn't realize until I did this research that she was doing it because she was like, no, like, I want it all. I want to do it all now. And she was kind of saying, like, I don't want anyone left behind by this. Mm. And, um, and I kind of feel like Elizabeth Taylor was doing the same thing. Like, she was like, I want it all. I want a career and money and love and diamonds and like why and lots of great wild <laughs> yeah. sex and like why can't I have it? Why can't I have it all? And I just I I want to toast women who want it all because you need women who want it to then have women who achieve it. Yeah. So cheers. <laughs> cheers to wanting it all. Mm-hmm. All right. Now on a lighter note. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week for the season finale? I just want to promote the Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh, it's so with good. Michael Caine. I think it's great. I love that Gonzo actually recites a Christmas yes, Carol. It's so throughout. good. It's the, I think it's the most well done children's version. It's emotional. I, I agree. Cry. Mm-hmm. I love old Fozzywig. How funny! Uh, How funny to make it Fozzy. Very good choice. I know. Um. And I just think it's great. Like I, we watched it the other night with our kids because I was just like in a, a mood to watch it. And I was like, this is why I like it because it really is so true to Charles Dickens in the most childish way. Yeah. And I think it's probably the best children adaptation and I would watch it over and over. Uh, yeah, I would agree because you ball, much, you yeah, ball I, yeah. when Casey, little baby Kermit dies. Casey and I watched it last Christmas and it was wonderful and it was so touching. And like, I also, I love the Disney version, but like the Muppet version really hits the um, emotional beats a little bit finer. Yeah. It's more, <laughs> it's more fine tuned. Like goofy being Jacob Marley is funny. Yeah. It's different. It's just different. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I really yeah, like I it. So to, to the Muppets, 
Charles Dickens Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. He even (laughs) says it. I love it. He says it. He says, okay, go ahead. Okay, so I am going to recommend a song. So I've been really into this band for a long time. The band is called Metric, and I found them actually when I was in high school because they did a song for a skate video that like my brothers were watching and whatever. Mm. And I was like, this band is really cool. And then there was a movie called Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yep. And metric did a song for it, but Brie Larson sang in this version and it's called black sheep. Cool. So I really recommend you listen to the Brie Larson version as much as I love metric. I really like her version of okay. it for the movie. Uh, I did a lot of driving this week and <laughs> a lot of time alone in the car. And this was my pump up anthem when okay. I was like, it's hour three. I have another hour and a half to go. Like I need something to excite me. And um, also I will say too, other than that, the music video with all the Scott Pilgrim things involved in it are so good. That's fun. And uh, yeah, I just, I I love it. It's a really good song. And Metric is a great band if you haven't listened to them yet. But this song, Black Sheep featuring Brie Larson is, it really fucking pumps you up. So Mm. I will recommend that. I love that. (laughs) All right. Well, find us everywhere. We're on all the places. We have so much social media. We would love for you to rate and review us. We um, are so excited for the holiday season. We're going to be running a deal on our Teespring shop so you can buy all of our stuff for cheaper. And we just hope that you're like really diving deep into this like December holiday season. It's going to be great. Uh, But most of all, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women uh, only have lightly salted popcorn. Oh, that's true. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye